There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Many of you know Axis deer is considered to be the best tasting venison on the planet. I've been hearing that for years. And that those deer cause some ecological harm. Well, Maui Nui Venison is bringing those Axis deer to the market. So you can get some fresh cuts and sticks shipped to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. All right, Virgil, let's just start out and have you just get right into it and introduce yourself. Like right off, before anybody even says anything interesting. Thanks, Steve. I'm Virgil Moore. I'm director at Idaho Fish and Game. Um... It's the uh, greatest job in the world. Like that's the top. That's the top dog individual. Well, I you know, have I have bosses, it. but yeah. yeah, in our agency, um, the director uh, oversees the operations of the entire agency. And you guys, and the crowning achievement of your career, right, is this passage of the new pine squirrel season. <laughs> well, I won't say it's a crowning <laughs> achievement. Um, Can you explain Steve, that real quick, but, though? Um, yeah, a couple of years ago, one of our commissioners just asked the question, uh, can we kill pine squirrels? You know, they're commonly known as red squirrels. And the the answer was, oh, they're protected wildlife. And then he goes, why? We go, I don't know. It's always been that way. Yeah, this came up because we I was just talking about how last night we were eating some pine squirrels for dinner. And I was saying how everywhere that I've ever lived lists the pine squirrel or red squirrel um, as a non-protected, non-game species, meaning no closed season, right. no bag limit. And I would have never have guessed that Idaho was an exception to that because like people don't really get after them. You know, they're a common household pest because if a squirrel gets in your attic, it's probably a pine squirrel right. in the northern tier states. Um. They prey, a surprising thing is they prey on snowshoe hare leverets. Do you know that? No. 
in, in Alberta, they did a mortality study on snowshoe hares. And most of the ones that went missing were found in pine squirrel middens. I got a buddy that watched one kill a bird one time. At so a they're bird predators. Feeder. Yeah, they like okay. to kill. They like to kill snowshoe hare leverets, and they like to eat baby birds out of nests. But mostly they eat pine seeds. Yep, their their stashes, their mittens, whatever you want to call them, become an important food source in the winter. Uh, for some birds and other wildlife because they get into those stashes. Yeah, and you see grizzlies in the spring will come yeah. out and excavate them, mm-hmm. you know, pull them all out. So then you guys realize there's no season for them, and, and what kind of magic needs to happen you to know, make it? You it, know, it's not as easy as just waving a wand and saying the season's open. We had to go through uh, rulemaking to make them non-protected first, and then we had to go through the process of proposing a season, getting public comment, and then the commission approving it. They just finally approved that at their last commission meeting. So we will have a pine squirrel season. And a bag limit. And a bag limit, So you yeah. guys are going from one extreme yeah. to the other. It's eight per day, 24 in possession. So, <laughs> And it's got an open season uh, that will be from uh, August 30th through March 31st. So, you know, there's a closed period. And that conforms with our open season for other um, rabbits and other small game. Gotcha. So uh, just for consistency reasons, we kept all of that the you're gonna, same. You're going to run them like small game. Yep. That's what Do you guys do. have any uh, regulations around, and I don't imagine you have thriving populations of fox and gray squirrels. Uh, we do have thriving populations of fox and gray squirrels, mostly in urban areas. Yeah. And uh, there is no protection on those. You can kill as many of those as you want. Because they're, because they're a non-native that came they're in. They're a with, non-native, yeah. non-protected wildlife. Because most of them are in urban areas where discharge of firearms is prohibited, yeah. um, that we don't see much use of them. Although there are a few folks uh, that, that utilize them. I mean, I'm a Missouri native. I was raised probably uh, the first thing I killed was either a rabbit or a squirrel. So one of the two had to be what I was shooting at. Yeah, exactly. Um. Next to Virgil, Chris. Hey, Steve. Chris is just hanging out. Chris is an old friend of mine. Who should, you should come on the show a lot more. I want to, yeah. I mean, my friends, I'm not a big podcast listener. I watch the show, the Meat Eater show all the time, but my friends listen to it all the time. I told them what I was doing today. They said, seriously, are you kidding me? Are you an anti-podcast <laughs> listener? <laughs> no, um, I'm not. But uh, to steal an old favorite phrase of yours that you stole from... Ian Frazier, you know, hunting or fishing is something I'd rather do than talk about. Yeah. So um, I'm not anti-podcast. I just, I write a lot and I need, uh, when I'm done writing, I need to get out of the word world, you know. So, yeah. Just uh, listen to silence. Right. For sure. You know, I remember reading somewhere that people were saying you can't appreciate music without appreciating silence because music is an inter- interruption of silence. Sure. I bet John Cage would love that, right? I don't know who said it. Well. I'm just going to act like I said that. Okay. Uh, I remember an old uh, squirrel Hassenfoffer meal that you made. Do you remember that? Yeah, man. Yeah. We used to get after him right here in town. Right here. But, uh, you know, live trap nuisance squirrels. Oh, is that how you were getting them? In other ways, we go we go out of state. We go out of state. Nuisance squirrels We go out of state to hunt. We'd go, you know, hunt them around. Uh, plug your book real quick. Okay. Well, my, my last book is called Body of Water. It's a nonfiction book from milkweed editions about uh really that centers around a man named david pinder who was the first bahamian bone fishing guide uh he went to uh he grew up on a small island called Deepwater key and in 1958 a 
a rich Floridian man named Gil Drake. A rich what man? A Floridian man named Gil Drake actually bought an island from the crown, um, the English crown, called Deepwater Key, and hired David Pinder to excavate the mangroves from the island, and over time hired Pinder to be his first fishing guide, bonefish guide in the Bahamas. So Pinder made about $5 a day at the time, and uh, over the last 50 or so years, the bone fishing industry has become the crux of the ecotourism industry in the Bahamas. So $150 million a year, basically this little fish that we used to throw into uh, Purina food bags uh, yeah. has become the crux uh, of an island, uh, the, the entire island's economy, really. First bonefish I ever saw, and this is way after bonefish became what bonefish are. The first one I ever saw was laying dead on the side of the road. <laughs> Where was that? In Mexico. Mexico. Right, yeah. Just dead on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. Like the weirdest thing. I was like, oh, it's not how you want to see your first bonefish. No. And the other day, a buddy of mine from Hawaii sent me a picture of just a classic grip and grin with a whole bunch of dead bonefish laying there because they make fish patties out they of do. them. They call right. it oyo. Uh-huh. And then you t- they don't. They catch them out in deep water. Yeah, huge bonefish. Huge over bonefish. There. My brother right. caught a big bonefish in a hundred feet of water in Hawaii one right. time. Right. Yeah. So they really? don't act like they're like a flats fish there. They act like they're just a fish to eat, a bony ass fish to eat. Right. I remember your uh, your discussion in in Meat Eater, the book about your first experience releasing these fish. That's when I found my first dead one on the side right. of the road, yeah. like a like roadkill bonefish. Uh huh. And then caught my first ones and let them go. And meanwhile, we like killed every other fish we didn't know what it right, was right right to like fuel our journey to let bonefish go because you got to eat something right we pull fish out be like what's that i don't know and eat it <laughs> <laughs> and then let all that let all those ones go <laughs> did you ever end up eating a bonefish yeah i've eaten bonefish one what was it like you said just boning pain the fine bone. white flesh totally fine you had to pick it to quote ian frazier again who i think might have stole this from john mcphee but he talked about eating roe shad right and he said it's kind of like fixing a watch, like picking the meat. Oh, sure. Like all the sure. bones, you know, he says it feels like you're like dismantling a watch to get it apart. But yeah, I ate one down there. Barracuda, I ate a lot of those kind of fish. Uh, but it's a cool book. We should maybe sometime dedicate a whole conversation about the book. Cause it tells a story about a fish that no one cares about becoming a fish that's like a billion dollar industry. Yeah, we should. I'll come back anytime. I'm glad you're living in Bozeman now. I remember when you used to. Speaking of picking fish, remember fishing for whitefish and making I smoked whitefish? I was fish talking food? about that yesterday. Oh, yeah. Tedious, but great recipe. Yeah. Um, on down the line. Well, you guys don't even have headsets on. What are you doing? Just monitoring? <laughs> <laughs> They're just taking pictures. Virgil brings staff no, with them. Yeah. Entourage. Oh, uh, yeah. Let's go ahead. Then we're, then we're going to dive into or then we're gonna dive into all things uh, fisheries and wildlife management. Giannis Patelis from the Meat Eater crew. Uh, Virgil, can you start out? I have a thousand things to ask you. One of the questions I want to ask you later once we get going is when you hear hunters and anglers talk bad about fish and game, what are the most legitimate complaints and what are the least legitimate complaints? But I don't want to talk about that yet, but just know that that's coming. So dig deep to try to like give a thing like what is the most legitimate complaint that you found in your career and lifetime of service? But I think first, I think it'd be interesting to talk about where your department sort of ends 
and you can make it general. You can like Idaho, right, is your area of expertise, but you probably have enough exposure from all the other agencies to like like where, where does what is a game commission, and what is its relationship to your department, and, and and how do you move from one of those? I think that this is this is something that's not well understood, and it might be a good basis to, no, for the conversation here. It that really is, and I certainly our game commission, Idaho Fish and Game Commission is integral to our agency. Uh, They are the policy and regulatory setting body for the Department of Fish and Game. As director, I set as the director of the Idaho Department of Fish and Game. I'm also a non-voting member of the Idaho Fish and Game Commission. My other title is Secretary of Fish and Game. And that interfaces the department through the director and the commission. In Idaho, the director serves at the pleasure of the commission, a seven-person board appointed by the governor uh, for staggered four-year terms. They can be appointed to two terms, confirmed by the Senate. As dir- Confirmed by the state Senate? Our commissioners are. Okay. As a director appointed by a commission, I do not have to go through that pol- that political process with the legislature. They do that. And so that's the firewall or the buffer that's there. But the governor selects those commissioners. And the commi- the governor selects the commissioners. The commissioner selects you, the director. Correct. And you have a term limit of two terms. For the commissioners. So they can serve two four-year terms, oh, okay. and then they term out. The director has no term limit. We can, so, so you can keep going and going yeah, and going. Yeah, you can keep going But it's going. not a lifetime appointment. No, it's, uh, you serve at the pleasure. And so uh, at any time, four commissioners decide they want somebody new, you've got your walking papers. How many commissioners are there? Seven. And that varies. But, but they, okay, but they set the rules. Yes. So like for instance, we talked about, and, and I don't want to put too much into this because it's a pretty small issue, pine squirrel season. Right. That has to go through the commission, right? Correct. But the commission draws so much of their information from the department. Absolutely. Because the commission's not doing out game surveys. No. So that's where the department and commission are linked. In 1938, the first initiative in the state of Idaho was approved by voters in the state that created the commission. Okay. Prior to 1938, we were formed as an agency in 1899, uh, the Department of Fish and Game. Prior to that, the director was appointed by the governor. It was completely partisan. And most of the staff... It was like the spoils of war. Right. And yeah. it was... And many of the staff were non-professional. And it was a very partisan uh, structure. Uh, decline of uh, trying to recover elk herds, uh, trying to get hunting back and going in the 20s and 30s, uh, failed miserably. Because we didn't have that professional... Uh, workforce out there doing the survey work. The initiative formed the commission and put the commission in its position of hiring the director and gave very specific roles to each body. And the department acts as staff and managers of that public trust that's out there. Uh, the commission is the, um, the trust holder uh, along with the legislature. Uh, they are the ones that are responsible for how to how to uh, deal with that trust. Uh, we just make recommendations and manage it per their direction. 
So up until the time pine squirrels were protected, that was the direction. Then they decided that as the, uh, the trust manager, they wanted to do something different. We said there's not a problem biologically. They went on with the rules. And so we interact very closely with our commission. Who, how often does the commission butt heads with the department? Like meaning, presumably there's people on the commission who have an ax to grind, right? Like, because they're from different walks of life. It, so, it happens. Uh, we don't see it a lot. Uh, generally, the commission tries to work as a team together, but they are appointed to represent geographic areas of the state. Okay. They're, they're pretty much, they have a district, and those, that district is very similar to our administrative regions, so we've got seven of those. And every so often, you see um, uh, a difference in the way that uh, the commissioners themselves want to go. As director, I manage the agency to make recommendations. Where we have a disconnect is if, for some reason, through public input, somebody wants a season change. But like, it like someone's saying, hey, there's the, I'm seeing fewer and fewer deer. Right. And then you look and you're there like, you go. he actually is probably seeing fewer and fewer deer. Let's say it's legitimate. And as an individual, I suspect that that's the case. They are seeing. But our survey work, we look at it and we go, you know, we killed more deer last year in that unit than we've ever killed before. Our survey information says that the buck-doe ratios in there are above policy. And so you have that disconnect between what you see in the spot you hunt and what we see when we try to manage a larger piece of real estate. Yeah. And so that goes to the commission. They get public input all the time like that. We're in the middle of it right now with some deer setting stuff that's going on. Yeah, like, like, tell me what you mean. White-tailed deer. We're, we're adopting a new white-tailed deer plan. And in that process, the question of do we know what we're talking about in this particular piece of real estate versus what the data is for game management units on a larger piece. And, and so the commission is in a situation where the biological information would suggest one thing. And what individuals that are motivated to get involved in the decision-making process show up at a public meeting and say, that isn't right. And you know what? They're probably not wrong about where they're hunting, what like they see. Their specific spot. But yeah. what it, it, does that mean that that's the way it is everywhere? And that's the kind of uh, wisdom and balancing that the commission has to go through to sort through, here's the science as we're trying to present it to you. And here's the public input that has some varied input. We can tell you all about this, but I can't say that what Joe Hunter over here sees is incorrect. Yeah. And so that is where the beauty of the commission process is. They're there to balance out perhaps the scientific information that we provide them with some of the input from the public of what they desire as trust um, users. They're the, they're the ones who get the benefit of that public trust of wildlife. We manage it. The commission is the trustee for that. And, and so we go back and forth through that process uh, constantly uh, with, with our commission. Most of the time, 99 and 9 tenths percent of what is out there for public input, we get good public input, we get agreement with the biological information, it goes through. We just approved fishing regulations for three years 
a new fish management plan for six years at this last commission meeting two weeks ago. Okay. Took 15 minutes. No dissenting anything. It took a year. No people pounding their it shoes. It took on a the... year of public input to get to that point. But by the time we got to that point, we didn't have any issues. That's not true with our deer, elk, and other wildlife management issues. We had no dissenting votes on pine squirrels, so that one went pretty easy. People are cool on pine squirrels. So far. It brings people together, man. <laughs> so squirrels far. bring people together. But, but uh, white-tailed deer are a big thing right now. With, like, tell me what, because there's a lot of them, not a lot of them? We're seeing, um, because of the way hunting occurs in Idaho uh, with uh, – the ability to move around. We have a whitetail tag for the late season whitetail hunt um, that that you have to decide whether you're going to hunt during the early mule deer and general deer season or whether you want to hunt whitetail only. And you get that whitetail tag. A lot of people prefer whitetail. You know, I do. And, and consequently, they all go to these really neat spots. And so they're seeing a lot more hunters. So you're out there driving around where you go by and you see six camps in a spot you didn't see but one camp four or five years ago. Then you go out hunting and you don't see the deer. Immediately, there's a problem. And this is occurring in the Clearwater and several other units around. That coupled with loss of access on private lands creates this uh, perception that hunting for me isn't as good as it used to be. And And that perception is correct for that person. And people are attributing this to forcing people to make this decision about what they want to hunt. That's part of it. They're also saying there's too many non-residents. And non-residents can be both people from out of state as well as people like myself from Boise coming up into their area to hunt. Uh, And it's, it's that social tension that comes with using uh, a resource out there. And as users, you've probably all seen that. I know I do. Um, you, you see it whether you're fishing or hunting. I get away from it by hunting later in the season uh, so I don't have to deal with it. Or I fish later in the season or during the, the shoulder periods. Yep. Montana, as an example, has their shoulder hunting seasons that they use right now to try to distribute some of that. We try to use our regulations to do that. But it at some point, we still have the the people seeing something different than what our biological data. So some of the the and I'll jump to your question. You know, what are the legitimate complaints? Okay, first add, add something. Sure. One of the writers that writes for us on our website, Pat Durkin, did a piece for us about comparing success rates, hunter success rates, with surveys about hunter satisfaction. Right. He's the, the the basic. I mean, just to really take something long and complex and make it short, is people are just generally not happy. Not happy. Like you take a relative picture year to year of like what was good hunting and bad hunting, and then to ask people to put a personal spin on it, they generally view it as being more negative than it was. I wouldn't totally agree with that. You don't totally agree with no, that? No, I don't. Our survey that we recently did on um, um, mule deer and whitetail hunters. Everybody's happy. No, no, I'm not going to say everybody's <laughs> Couldn't happy. Couldn't be better. But, but most people are satisfied or very satisfied. Is that right? Based on the survey work we did. Okay. It varies depending on the geography. It varies on what they're after. Uh, one of the things that we are in Idaho by commission direction, 
We're an opportunity state. We're all about being able to hunt every year. We're all about giving people that chance to get out there. And to accomplish that, we have to have that that ability to hunt every year. You're going to have fewer older growth animals sure. than you would if if you didn't go for that opportunity. And so that Spend is... Spend a couple minutes on that. So, Spend a couple minutes on, on an opportunity state versus a... On a, a quality state. Yeah, like grab, grab a... Utah. You feel, okay, Utah's Utah a quality has, state. Uh, and this is based on their public input down there. Okay. And a large number of hunters there and different productivity chose years ago to go with a quality system that produced a larger proportion of the herd as four-point animals. Gotcha. Uh, Idaho has quality. Don't get me wrong. It's just we manage the productivity of that herd so that we can utilize that productivity for as many hunters as possible while still producing a pretty good number of four-point animals, whether they're mule deer or whitetail. We talk about this, too, as being like some states are kind of split, right? Yep, they, like Colorado's yep. quality on mule deer, opportunity on elk, right? Correct. Yeah. And, and part of it has to do with the number of animals that are there. In general, our mule deer haven't been doing as well as our elk. Although in Idaho, with, uh, with some of the work we've been doing, as well as the easy winters we've had and the better survival on fawns, uh, our mule deer are really up. But half that's, of our deer, deer harvest is whitetail in Idaho. The other half is yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> the all those dudes up in the panhandle. and It's because yeah, we got yeah. a lot of them. Yeah. And, and people are turning on to them because they taste better. Now, that's no, just my yeah, bias. That's, no. that's my bias. I'll put it this way. When my wife is not a hunter... But she is a consumer. Yeah. And when I go hunting, I generally get orders as to what she prefers that I bring home. And, and uh, a whitetail are much higher on the list than a stinky old mule deer, as she puts it. Okay. Now, I find them both very flavorful. Yeah. <laughs> I like the flavor. They're both distinct and different and enjoy eating both but of them. But when she puts in a ticket... She puts in a whitetail ticket. I just keep telling her, just get your own ticket and come out hunting with me. But uh, How long have you guys been married? <laughs> really? Lay, lay, uh, I want to get into your bio for a minute, but lay a good piece of marriage advice on us. Listen to your spouse. Really? That's bring, bring home a whitetail. <laughs> oh. <laughs> home whitetails. Can I ask a question about, uh, so when you guys are prioritizing um, you know, an initiative or, or, or you know, this, uh, the new squirrel... Uh, listing right i mean are you thinking well that's going to be an economic boon for the state i mean the this, this squirrel thing or i'm kidding a little bit but how how much are you prioritizing like revenue potential revenue over the resource or is it certainly um, idaho gets no general funds okay our revenue is generated by predominantly licensed sales uh, as well as contract money and the excise tax on hanging and fishing equipment, Pittman Robertson and Daniel Johnson. Uh, what's the contract money? Contract money is mitigation money, like from Bonneville Power to operate hatcheries for the mitigation of dams, Idaho Power, Avista, um, gosh, you name it. We get contract money to work with uh, BPA as an example. We've got contract money to do sage grouse work for the Fish and Wildlife Service. Gotcha, gotcha. But a lot of it, most of it's mitigation money to operate hatcheries for hydropower development. Yeah. So, Meaning the hydropower development 
impedes fish movements, and they got to make up for that by running hatcheries. Correct. Yeah. It's, it's and then just, the state runs the hatcheries for them. We operate the hatcheries that they built for yeah, those facilities. Gotcha. And, and so that's a huge piece of our budget. But as far as uh, the discretionary funds that we get, it's almost all license money. A little tiny bit off of non-game license plate sales. Uh, we have a license plate system, and, and that generates uh, together about $2 million that runs that uh, non-game program uh, that we have in the state. So back to your question about what do we get, uh, do we take economics into consideration? If it was a conservation issue where you should hunt or not hunt, the answer is no. But when you're looking at the way you conduct a hunt, the way you, you set seasons, uh, how you allocate those tags to residents and non-residents, definitely revenue is on the table as, a, as an item to take a look at. But by and large, the commission isn't as concerned uh, with revenue as they are the social aspects of how this affects hunters in the field. Um, I'll, I can give you an example. We can dive into this. I mean, the commission just recently closed steelhead fishing in the state of Idaho. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the economic effects of that are huge. Right. Especially, I, got email, I got emails from guys who are pissed right, off about well, that. Well, I got a lot of emails. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sure, uh, but I'm sure you got more than We had a public meeting last week in Riggins. Now, Riggins is on the Salmon River, uh, a very small community uh, that has mostly natural resource-based economy. Used to be timber. That's gone. Now it's hunting and fishing. I mean, and whitewater rafting yeah. on the main Salmon River. And the closure of a winter steelhead fishery is millions of dollars mm-hmm. uh, to a community that is probably getting a third of their financial revenue from steelhead fishing, another third from Chinook, and the rest of it from other outdoor-based recreation activities. And so it hits a community like that hard over Christmas. Goodness, who's Grinch here? Yeah. And, and I get it. Talk, uh, the numbers. I'm guessing just, why, but, but talk about what precipitated the closure. It this, wasn't that people decided it was mean to catch no, steelhead. No, no. We, um, um, we got served with a notice of intent to be sued um, in about 45 days ago. Who was bringing the suit? Oh, it was a group of five um, fish advocacy groups and river groups uh, that felt like that the, what we call mixed stock fishery, where we fish on the hatchery fish, these mitigation fish, and there are wild listed steelhead in the river with them, felt that our fishery was harming those wild fish. Technically, the problem is we don't have a permit to have that mixed stock fishery. It expired in 2010. The federal agency responsible for that permit, uh, National Marine Fisheries Service, uh, has failed to issue that permit to us since 2010. We have submitted it every year. We have complied with the terms of the permit, uh, but they have been working on other areas that were very important for permitting. Um, and I can get into the technicalities of that, but the the point is we are guilty of not having a permit. Yeah. So here we're getting a notice. NOAA or National Marine Fisheries Service says, go ahead and fish without the permit. Comply with the terms you submitted. We don't have time to go through the process to give you that permit, but we're not going to prosecute you under the Endangered Species Act. 
the Endangered Species Act has a citizen's lawsuit feature in it that allows private citizens to sue somebody violating it. That was, I mean, this has been going on for eight years, and then we get this notice of intent to sue. If you go to court and are found to be uh, guilty, I guess you would say, or not in compliance, then the state has to pay all the legal fees okay. of the plaintiffs. And knowing what we knew, we felt that it was not useful to go through a legal defense when we really didn't have the permit trying to convince a judge. And in all likelihood, the plaintiffs would have asked the judge for an emergency closure. While they sorted it While they sorted it. And the end result would be we would be paying the legal fees and we would have a closed steelhead system. By closing the season, we preclude them from taking us to court. Okay. So now the decision to open it back up is still with the commission. The permit will be done in March next spring. Uh, we, we've in the meantime, you're going to get a black eye, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and deservedly so. Oh, uh, no, you deservedly, so? We, are, we probably could have been a little more aggressive with seeing that this could happen. But frankly, I knew for, well, I've been director for eight years, and the whole time I knew we'd been playing doing this. And I felt because National Marine Fisheries Service wasn't going to prosecute us that we were okay. I never thought about our conservation friends in these other entities taking us to court. Well, they did. Are these fisher? Are these angler-based groups? Or or, Um, or, or? a couple of them are angler-based groups. A couple of them are river-based groups. The angler groups desiring more wild fish in the. Yeah, they've got a different agenda, and I'll be honest with you, uh, part of the agenda, they were willing to not sue us if we agreed to go to no bait, single barbless hooks, fly fishing only, ban the use of boats. So they were trying to say this was a conservation issue, but then they had this string of things that would have precluded most of our steelhead anglers from going fishing just so that group could get out there, yep. the catch and release group, basically. And are the people of Riggins and that whole kind of valley there, are they upset mostly at you guys? Or? We're, they're upset that we allowed this to get to where it is. But at the public meeting we had last week going into town, there was a sign, um, you know, public meeting, so-and-so place, such-and-such time, and they had the name of one of these groups just plastered on there said, not welcome. Oh, okay. <laughs> so yeah, the, the, they're they're doing. I have a meeting tomorrow with the board of one of these groups. The season doesn't take effect until December the seventh, I think, is when it closes. Pearl so, Harbor, man. I know that's a symbolic date. Ter- terrible date. <laughs> um, but we've got a little bit of time in here. We're still negotiating. We had a negotiated yeah. settlement two weeks ago, and then when all of the plaintiffs left, they they came back a day later and said, "No, we're going to back away from our agreement." So yeah, I got a couple quick questions. First, for Chris, uh, you're, you're you're a fishing guide. Yeah, I'm do you stray over to that country at all? I do not. No, I grew you don't up, head that far downriving. No, I grew up steelheading in, in Michigan, so. Um, we don't have these problems. No, we don't do have we? these problems. <laughs> but um, no, I, I'm, you can still line the bank with them down there, right? Uh, I spend most most of the winter writing. So as soon as I'm off the river in late October, I'm I'm hanging up the rods and the waders and uh, chasing the bird dog around. But um, but do you hear guys griping about this? Oh, I didn't I didn't even know about it, which tells you how how off much I've been in the woods in the last 
month or so, but all, you know, most of the Missoula, single Missoula fishing guides head over there for, for a good month and, you know, drag a trailer over and uh, take part. Right. For sure. Uh, I'm, it's fascinating to me and, and, uh, surprising too. No, here's my question for you, Virgil, on this issue. It, the average letter writer who writes in with a complaint, um, let's say you were to take all those people and make a pool of them. So forget the average. You're going to take a pool of all the people that have written a letter of complaint. How many of those individuals, if, if you had to guess, what percentage of those individuals would be able to articulate the issue to the extent that you just articulated it to me right now? Is it well understood or do you find or are you baffled by how not well understood it is? I'm baffled by how not well understood it is. We're pushing the envelope. This closure only occurred less than two weeks ago. In fact, it'll be two weeks ago Wednesday, this coming Wednesday. And so we're, we're trying to get the word out there. The form letters that I've been inundated with simply aren't accurate. Uh, the misunderstanding that there is a conservation benefit to this closure uh, is wrong. Okay, uh, that there is uh, a catch and release mortality on these listed steelhead, but that is less than 3% of handling, and that's a worst case scenario. That's what number they're at right now? That's what we use in our permit, and we predict that three out of 100 fish handled may die as a result of that catch and release fishery, and that's the impact that we will have on these wild fish while we're catching and keeping hatchery fish. Okay, and it's something all the states do. I mean, Washington has their permit in hand. They got it a couple of years ago. They got theirs first. So the Washington part of the Snake River will stay open, even though ours will close because it's, it's border water. Oregon doesn't have their permit for this fishery, but they're going to continue to fish because they didn't get sued. You know, and so it, it's a Ooh. very selective um, uh, legal action. Who's going to continue to fish? or the state of Oregon will continue fish, as will Washington, on the Snake River portion. Our Salmon River and Clearwater Rivers would be the ones that are predominantly affected by this, as well as Idaho-licensed anglers who fish Hell's Canyon, the Snake River portion. But you could continue to fish by buying a Washington license. That's the absurdity of some of this. But the bottom line is the catch-and-release fishery is not the issue here. Um, This is partially a social issue. This is partially an issue of these advocacy groups trying to make a point that Idaho isn't doing enough as a state on downriver issues. And so they're hitting us at home with a legal action on our sport fisheries. And it really doesn't hurt the department. It hurts the local communities, right? You have, I mean, you you gave some that's percentages, the economics, but um, you gave some percentages. But what's what's the dollar figure roughly? You know, in the town of Riggins, we've done the economic evaluation, and I'm going to say the town of Riggins for this winter fishery 
is a million and a half dollars if my numbers. Now, it doesn't sound like a lot of money. Yeah, but how many people live there? I mean, there's less than a thousand people there. In the wintertime, there's probably half that. I mean, it ends up being a a big chunk of change if you factor in population. Right, it is a big deal. Clearwater, you know, or Fino, that area there, um, it gets hit hard. And the outfitters and guides that rely on that and cater to that. I mean, I got a heartfelt letter from a guide up on the Clearwater. And and he, he said, gosh, it couldn't come at a worse time. He goes, I don't make a lot of money during this period of time, but it's going to cost me $5,000 in the next six weeks, and it's going to ruin my Christmas with my kids. Yeah, Gosh, I just almost get into tears over something like that. And it's like, well, dang, should we have not closed it, let it go to court, fought and tried to keep it open as long as possible? We're still having that active discussion right now. But... These actions that appear to be just about the department and its management really are about people and the people who use the resource and the communities that benefit from those resources. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself. And you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So, when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out, there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless. With Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and then even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you 
to get hydrated. Doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Uh, walk me through how you, how you wound up where you are now. Like, the, were you aiming through your career in fish and wildlife to wind up in this position, or does it never? You just kind of did what made sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm um, by training, I'm a fisheries scientist. Uh, I was worked as a fisheries biologist, undergraduate degrees in education. I taught high school, came to Idaho, worked on fish on steelhead. As a matter of fact, in my oh, graduate, so you got a background in steelhead. Yeah, and I worked on steelhead and cutthroat. Um, got on with the department over forty years ago. Uh, um, and worked on the South Fork of the Snake River uh, in Idaho on cutthroat trout in the late 70s and early 80s uh, on uh, a problem we were having there with declining numbers and size of fish and uh, got an opportunity to manage that fishery for about seven years. And uh, that included that area that I was manager over, included the Henry's Fork and the South Fork of the Snake and some of that greatest fishing country in well, in the world, maybe maybe Montana's close, but you know we'll we'll <laughs> give since we're in Montana, I'll give them a little credit for having good fisheries. On you can this have side. the prize and, <laughs> and the tourists. But the the bottom line is, then I just worked my way up when I had an opportunity in various positions as state fish manager, fishery research manager. I was uh, the bureau chief over our communications program for a while, fisheries chief. I uh, did a stint in Oregon as director for a year. Okay. Uh, went over there and um, learned a lot. I consider it a, now as a one-year sabbatical to a different state and had an opportunity to come back uh, to Idaho as a deputy director and turned into a director's job. So it's a really short bio when you get down to it. It's just a lot of different opportunities and jobs, but it's all doing the same thing. It's working with people to manage their resources to provide what they want while having that foundation in our mission statement, which is preserve, protect, perpetuate, and manage for the benefit of the people. That resource can only be used when it's preserved, protected, and perpetuated. And when it is used, its primary use is hunting, fishing, and trapping. That is in the code that formed our agency that was given to us in 1938 by the people of the state. It was approved by 73% of the people in the state in 1938. Um, a lot of people said, well, that's dated. You know, that was, gosh, that was 80-some-odd years. I guess that was 80 years ago. And it's no longer valid. Well, in 2012, we had an initiative, in the, or we had a, a constitutional amendment, the right to hunt, fish, and trap. And in that amendment, it had the right to hunt, fish, and trap is held in, uh, to be a, a right for the people as a whole, not individuals as much. And 
that the primary method of managing wildlife in the state of Idaho is hunting, fishing, and trapping. So if you're going to manage wildlife populations, you do it with hunting, fishing, and trapping. That got approved by 75% public of the people. Public hunting and fishing and trapping. Public hunting and fishing and trapping. Rather than government-sponsored right. shooting. And, yeah. Right. They want the public to do it. That was approved by 75% of the people in 2012. Now, oh, if that isn't great, an yeah. endorsement yeah. of the 1938 initiative, move it forward. So what we in Idaho have is the benefit of knowing from a participation in an, in a, an election what it is the really big goals are. And that makes my job easy. If you flip the card over I gave you on the back, there is our mission statement that's in code. That's the whole thing written out there. And it's three sentences long. Is that, is that on the back of everybody's card? No, it's on the back of mine. That, I, that's I, your personal. But that's, that's something yeah. I do so that I can, because whenever I doubt what's going on, I just flip that over and read through it again. It's like, okay, it's like everything I need to know yeah. is right there. So in Idaho, uh, I'm switching gears here a little bit. Um, in Idaho, when you get when you get an email and the sub and the subject line is steelhead, or the subject line is grizzly bears, which one are you more like? Oh no! Um, I mean, because this is like you spend a lot of time on these two critters. Certainly, um, endangered species as a whole, and um, uh, those two add in sage grouse, and uh, yeah, that's occupied a fair amount of uh, our time. Um, I will take the steelhead one any day of the week over grizzly bear. Well, you have a lot of personal. Well, I have some that of that, too. and we have more biologic. We have oh, it's less uh, value laden relative to uh, managing fish. Okay, you know, a wild steelhead is a phenomenal creature. I mean, they are. There's nothing, nothing like them on the end of a fly rod and any kind of tackle. They're just awesome. Yeah, they've been uh, cruising around out in the ocean. Now they're right. here, they are up in the mountains. And and, yeah. uh, and a hatchery steelhead isn't far below that. But certainly to have have that creature in your hand. But they're still generally not thought of as individuals. Yeah. They're thought of as gotcha. a population, as a run, uh, as a school. You know that type. That's of a good thing. point, man. They're and, like a, they're part of a right. run, and yeah. and consequently the emotional attachment to them doesn't go to the individual level. With megafauna, with big animals, you know, uh, bears, wolves, uh, cougars, uh, you name it, uh, deer and elk. Um, large. To a much lesser degree than the other ones you named. Right. Well, I guess you're doing it in order. Of, I, I am. Yeah, you're, you're, you're so ordering them out in a way that makes sense. We call them charismatic megafauna, you know, big charismatic critters. And, and they come with a whole different set of values where people – try to humanize those animals and their behavior and consequently having a discussion about biology with folks who have that becomes way more difficult can you sketch out um and go back as far as you want you can go all the way back to 1974 whatever the hell it was or you can go back the last two or three years but sketch out where idaho sits and where things stand right now and do the grizzly one and you can personalize it, you can yeah. editorialize it however you want to do, but just like tell well, a little narrative. We should be celebrating the recovery of grizzlies in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Yes. We should be ready to celebrate the delisting of grizzly bears here in the northern Rockies, in the northern continental divide, just north of where we're at here in Missoula right now. Um, but I know in the, in the tri-state area there, uh, we have an 
excellent grizzly bear population that's properly managed. We've got exceeded the management goals. We've answered every scientific question in a legal arena. And uh, to still have those bears on the list because of legal issues, judicial issues, to me undermines the whole benefit of the Endangered Species Act. We yeah, wasted we're the, we're the, the agency that's in charge of like the agency that oversees the population right now, they're saying it should be delisted. Correct. Yeah. Fish and Wildlife Service themselves believes it should be delisted. They're the ones who delisted it. They've been told to relist them until such a time as they answer these legal questions. Now, we will get them delisted, okay? Whether it was last year, whether it's next year or three years out, because the population is secure. Nothing about answering these legal questions. But this isn't about whether the population is secure or not. It is about the fact that folks do not believe that the management tool of choice, again, going back to our constitutional amendment, is hunting. Yeah. So when we have more bears or problem bears, our choice is to have a hunter go out and take care of that versus having our staff go out and trap the bear and get rid of it. Now, we're going to have to do a combination. But I would much prefer to use a hunter who buys a license and a tag to go out on his own time to take that animal and keep the population in check for the social needs of the communities around there than send one of my staff out there to trap the bear and then euthanize it unceremoniously. I believe that we have a lot more respect for that wildlife we interact with in that manner than we do with wildlife that we just euthanize in a, in a manner to kind of take care of that nuisance. Um, do you right now feel as though, do you feel as though the fight around grizzly bear delisting will wind up being worse than what happened around wolves? Or do you feel like it'll follow that same pattern of you had like some stops and starts, you had some lawsuits, but you eventually right. wound up at least in Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, you wound up, with delisted wolves and regulated hunting, um, or do you think this is fundamentally different and will play out in a different way? It's, I think it's fundamentally the same, okay. uh, and I do think it'll play out in a similar manner. But the anti-hunting aspects of it is even larger you think so? with grizzly bears than it is mm. with wolves, although it's very large with, with wolves. Uh, it's, um, it, it's a very strong... A community of people out there who believe in their values, yeah. and uh, at the same time, it's it's part of where the frustration is because delisted wildlife, normal wildlife, are under the sovereign trust responsibilities of each individual state. There are a lot of people that don't believe they're being heard, and their needs are being addressed by our commission, and. I can tell you they're being hurt. What, what, what needs do you mean? Like what, what, what groups of people? I'll give you an example. One of the things that we were told they wanted was a buffer around Yellowstone Park. Yeah. So we wouldn't have a celebrity bear going outside of the boundary and getting shot and then running back into the park. Yeah. I, and, and so I get, I get that. As though the park's not big enough already, it needs to become and, bigger. And so the park, we, and, but they're saying, well, you ignored us when we asked for that. No, we didn't ignore it. 
we took it into serious consideration and looked at it and said it was unmanageable to do because grizzly bears can roam as much as 16 to 25 miles outside of the park. And a wounded animal could go right back in, whether it is 100 yards from the border, at the border, or five miles out, you know, and it just wasn't a tenable thing for us to address relative to that. But they were heard. It was discussed. But the decision didn't go the way they wanted it. So they want to federalize management of these species. And under the Endangered Species Act, that's the Fish and Wildlife Service or its National Marine Fisheries Service for fish and, and pinnipeds for uh, seals and sea lions. And um, they wanted to... To, they want to federalize as many species as possible so the state doesn't have the final say. And I, I believe at core, that's a lot of what's going on here. When, when the delisting happened and, and bears were what now has proved to be temporarily delisted, you had three states that were looking at assuming management. Okay, You had Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho. And you wound up having like three, what, what appeared to me to be three very different responses to this in the hunting question okay where montana was fixing to sort of sit out the hunting season and i felt that that was kind of a lame move this is just me personally talking i'm not i'm just not virgil i'm not speaking for virgil and or the idaho fishing game or anyone just personally i thought it was a kind of a lame move because they were sort of be like i don't want the black eye i don't want to be caught in the controversy i'm gonna see how it plays out with idaho and wyoming now wyoming has kind of hosts more of that little subset of the population of bears they host more than anyone else they were pretty aggressive they were talking about 20 like you know harvesting 24 killing 24 grizzly bears idaho in in a curious way came in where they were going to issue a tag that's symbolic right it's symbolic but that was our allocation so the tri-state plan that we all three have agreed to uh allocates the available mortality to the states based on the size of the geography. Okay. Idaho only has 16% of that grizzly bear range. And so we get a smaller portion of that available mortality to utilize. Also, oh, it wasn't just a symbolic No, gesture. no, no. It we, wasn't like, we want to do it, but we don't right. really want to do it, so we'll do one. Our allocation was like 1.4 or 1.5 bears. I see. Okay. And, and we, you wanted to come in under. Yeah. Had a, I would have liked to have borrowed a half a bear from Montana or, yeah. or Wyoming so that I could get two. you know what Montana's allocation was? I don't. What it, it could was, have been? It was yeah. like seven or eight, I think. Was it? I, I, it may have been in the teens. I, I don't remember. Uh, but it's intermediate to Wyoming being the largest, Montana the next, and Idaho the smallest. How much did you talk to those guys? A lot. Oh, yeah. We, we, you guys get in fights? No. We really don't. I, I will tell you that the, the tri-state uh, working relations between Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho are top-notch. Uh, we formed that during the wolf uh, delisting things, and we continually have constant and routine interactions. But the other thing you have to understand is with states is we don't all manage exactly the same to get the same output. The way I structure our hunting seasons under the, the, the ability may be different than the way Wyoming or Montana does it but it's still under the same state sovereignty trying to provide for the needs of the people that they have. And as long as it is above the bounds of conservation, there's really nothing wrong with that. It's the way Utah does trophy. 
There's nothing wrong with what Utah is doing with their trophy mule deer management. Yeah. That's what they chose to do. There's nothing wrong with Idaho doing our management as opportunity. That's what we chose to do. The differences are actually great to have because each state is an experiment in wildlife management above that conservation threshold that we can learn from each other. Well, imagine you, you have to share information all we the time. We share information yeah. all the time. We have a, a, a group we call the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. And that group, we come together twice a year and interact with each other a lot. Uh, we'll have a meeting coming up in early January, and that's where I'll meet with Montana and Wyoming again to t- discuss grizzly bear issues and how to move forward. Were you guys uh, on the grizzly bear thing? Did you did you issue the tag? We did issue the tag. Did you, did you keep the person anonymous? Uh, yes, we. Well, the name is available, but any other information about them is not by state law. Uh, that, and then, you had, then they had to call him up, and I guess he. So the commission took action at the last commission meeting to rain check that um, uh, opportunity to that individual for next year, okay. because it was suspended by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Once they were relisted, they can't have directed sport mortality under ESA. Does Idaho have salvage requirements for black bears? Meat salvage requirements? Not meat. The commission changed the uh, meat retrieval portion of that well, a decade or so ago. Is that right? Yeah. And it's, so I'm guessing they weren't going to do a meat salvage requirement on grizzly bears? No, that is not part of the, the requirement. And again, that's some of the variation you get from among states. Someone told me how they were in a meeting and uh, it was like a, it was a public comment period and, and some hunters were saying, well, you know, we should do a, you know, we're, we're proposing this idea of a meat salvage requirement. Right. And some of the people who were opposing the hunt were sort of saying like, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? When you say don't, like not infantilize. What is the word? Indulge. No, that's right. not it. That's what I'm looking for. I don't know. They're saying like, don't, uh, you know, don't. Doggone it, man. Callahan was telling me this story and I can't remember the word they used for it. But they're kind of like, don't do this phony symbolic thing to greenwash this. Correct. There's, but I can't remember the word that he said that was used. But they were sort of like, rather than them, rather than the the opposition figures saying like, yes, I oppose the hunt, but if there is going to be one, I agree that there should be a meat salvage requirement. They wanted to make sure it looked as bad as possible. Agreed. I, I, no, 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 because that's going to confuse things too much. I'd rather there wasn't because it's easier for us to bash it. Right. You know? Certainly, one of the things that we know as wildlife managers uh, for you and as hunters on your behalf is that support for hunting, that is for traditional consumptive purposes, in the United States is very high. A recent survey that I saw presented that was uh, – uh, presented this last spring, showed that over 70% of the American public is supportive of traditional regulated hunting activities where consumption is part of it. Yeah. Depending then on, and that's been pretty stable. We don't have to win support. As hunters, we just have to keep it. Part of what you're talking about, Steve, is how do we regulate our own behavior so we maintain that support for that traditional hunting-based activity that we so value. 
Uh, I believe that the use of a red squirrel where you described the meal you got off of it is in keeping with that traditional uh, activity that we know gives us a lot of support, whether people hunt or not. We do know from other surveys that when you label this trophy hunting, when all you're out there for is the trophy, without a, the consumptive Which is a very part, confusing term. It, it is a very conserving, but support from the public surveyed across the United States drops into the mid-20s. Yeah. And so the anti-hunters are trying to portray grizzly bear hunting as a trophy activity, not a population management activity, not anything else. And successfully then, they turn the tables. We have to, as hunters, take a look at how we interact with the wildlife that we take, the almost spiritual aspect of both taking that life as well as the consumption, whether it's the use of the fur or the meat or the bone in whatever manner, uh, we've got to take and keep that front and center as we propose changes in hunting seasons and how we interact with our wildlife and fish, for that matter. So just to wrap up on grizzlies, if you look at a crystal ball, and be dead honest, okay? Don't tell me what you want to happen. Be dead honest. Where is it going to wind up? They'll be delisted. It'll take another year or two okay. to work through the legal system. We'll persist on that. Uh, simply because the population itself is so strong. I mean, all the habitat's occupied. It's actually plateaued out. And, uh, and as long as we're able to delist it based on that distinct population segment that it was listed under uh, for that uh, Yellowstone ecosystem, the same will be true for the Northern Continental Divide. It takes in Glacier National Park. Yeah. That will get delisted at some point as well. Other populations that we've got, like in the Selkirks, uh, these little populations that are reliant on, on Canada, we don't believe we'll ever achieve the populations that are called for in the recovery plans because they're so small and isolated. Yeah, it's hard to picture. And it's hard to picture. Like the Northern Cascades, which might, might or might not right. have one in it, like at this very second, right? right. Yeah. A good example of that. And so... Uh, but, but you think that the, the greater Yellowstone and the Northern Continental Divide, where you have like maybe 800, maybe 1,000 in the other one? Yeah. I mean, um, I don't know what's in the Northern Continental Divide, but I... I, the, I think the fashionable guess yeah. is around 1,000. And so the answer is yeah. Yeah. There's uh, nothing to be gained by not delisting them. Yeah. And there's a lot to be gained by doing that. It's a success of ESA. All the financial and human resources going into the ESA process go away, and we can put our efforts on something else that's more important and, uh, and get on with it. And that's been my, my complaint about how ESA has been used is it's, it's being used to achieve other needs. It's just like this lawsuit over our steelhead permit. They're not suing us for conservation purposes on steelhead. They're suing us to get other things that they haven't, don't feel they've been heard on. And, yeah. um, and, and that's a misuse of, of the Endangered Species that's Act. That's the thing that saddens me about seeing how the Endangered Species Act is used. Is that it's oftentimes in these big public battles becomes about something very different than what it's supposed to be talking Correct. about. Correct. Like the conversations we're having around grizzlies right now, we're not having a conversation about whether the population's recovered. It's just that, like, I know what I want. You know, that people can look at it and say, I know what I want. 
Um, I'm not really interested in the main question that governs that, like pop- population stability, but I'm going to use components of the ESA as a tool to get what I want. Correct. And, and, and what I want is I damn sure don't want some redneck shooting a grizzly bear. Certainly. It's like their perspective on it. That's, I understand that. And that we've seen that social angst over large predatory wildlife goes down tremendously when they have a ticket in their pocket, a permit, to kill that because the control shifted from the Fish and Wildlife Service to the hunter himself or herself, as the case may be. We saw it with wolves. Oh, my gosh, the angst over wolves and the predation they were having on both livestock as well as wildlife was huge. The number of letters we got from sportsmen was unbelievable. As soon as we opened a season and people could buy a permit, that went way down. And wolves went back extinct again, right? Yeah, right. No, no, not even <laughs> close. I mean, we dropped their numbers by a few hundred. We're cropping them off. But it, ch- uh, it changed behavior a lot, though. It did change yeah. their behavior, but we have reduced live do- livestock depredations. That's what I mean. Uh, yeah. And uh, we've, we've shifted their behavior around. They now understand what humans are and tend to stay away. Uh, we still have hotspot problems with wolf predation, but uh, most of it's on, on our ungulates, on our deer and elk. Yeah. Uh, it's not as much on livestock. Uh, we, we've really used hunting as well as directed uh, kill uh, by our agency and its staff and uh, U.S. Wildlife Services to reduce that tremendously. And um, we're making some inroads on uh, elk management as well. We're killing enough of them that elk populations have jumped back, up, back up in some areas. Because like, the panhandle got devastated. It, it did, and it still has some holes. I mean, we've got 27 elk, elk zones in the state. And uh, of that, seven of them aren't meeting objectives. Five of those are almost certainly the result of predation. Uh, two of them, a combination of that and other factors. Um, so we've, we've changed that. Originally, we were at, uh, I think, 11 zones weren't meeting objectives. And so we've pushed that back down uh, to a lower number. Uh, and those are mostly backcountry units. We can't, we're not getting enough hunters in there. We don't have livestock in there, so we don't have... Uh, wildlife services in there directly killing animals at our our request. Uh, we're trying that in the Lolo uh, zone just over the hill here uh, where we sent wildlife services in there as an experiment to uh, kill wolves to try to reduce their numbers to a point we can see elk populations come back well, so you up. You can use wildlife services like that. It doesn't, oh, yeah. have, to, it doesn't have to be ag. Doesn't no, have to be agriculture. No, no, we we use them. Okay. Uh, uh, in fact, I prefer to use them. They're they're cheaper and better at it than our staff are, uh, because they've got the right equipment and training yeah. to get in and get that taken care of uh, uh, to to handle that. And we have found that we can remove enough wolves to get a response, but it's a garden weeding operation. I mean, they're very productive. They come back. So you got to go back in there. And what we need is to get enough hunters and trappers in there once we get the numbers down to keep the numbers down so we don't have to keep paying a third entity or our own staff to go in there and yeah. do that. And whether we can get there in a place like the Lolo or the Middle Fork of the Salmon or the Selway and some of these really thick backcountry panhandle units is yet to be seen. We're working with the trappers in the state. 
uh, to try to enhance their ability to get in there by changing some season structures, bag limits, uh, trap uh, check limits, and stuff like that, working very closely to adjust those to try to get to um, a better place with being able to use uh, sport trapping as a means of control as well. And uh, I'm pretty excited about that. But we've only been at this now for... I guess eight, nine years, and we've only been out from underneath the umbrella of the Fish and Wildlife Service. We had a five-year probationary period where we couldn't do a lot of things. So we've really only been at this about three years with trying some new stuff. And you're going to see us continue to do that. What do you think will end up happening in the Northern Great Lakes? I know this is like we're getting like way outside of your purview, but do you think that, that there's light at the end of the tunnel? There is a bill in Congress to delist wolves nationwide, across the board, they're just done. Uh, whether that stands a chance of getting through in this. I think it's a little too, like, um, a little too elastic. Yeah, I, all I know is in, the, in, in that particular area, that's probably their best chance for delisting because of the way the judicial order is, is on them up there. It's a little different. Um, but it's, it's going to be there out. They don't have a population problem there. Nope. It's, 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 again, they're tied up in this legal mess that they, they can't get out and of. And there it's around the question of distinct population segments. It is. I, mean, I don't want to get us like terribly into uh, the weeds, but there it winds up being again. Right. Like nitpick, it's like nitpicking little <clears throat> legal things. and right. not, They're not arguing about the main question. Right. The main question being like, are there enough wolves? That's There's not, plenty that's not of the wolves question. Yeah. within that geography. There's no... There's no benefit being derived of ESA. That's where I think the question, it's the, it's the nuances of the Endangered Species Act and somebody arguing over the definition of a distinct population segment or some other aspect of ESA that uh, many attorneys are very good at arguing in a court of law. And it's not it's relevant. It's a great benefit to their pocket. What, probably, yeah, given, <laughs> given the way they're reimbursed, yeah. There's, yeah. there's a number of scholarly articles on, uh, on the reimbursement of, of uh, the legal people that are taking these suits. It's a cottage industry. Yeah, I can, and, uh, I can, I can and, imagine being an ESA lawyer. But at the same time, it is their right to take those legal actions, and that's just the way it is. And until Congress decides to change something on that, it's it's what we have to deal with. Oh, I don't want to blow the. I don't want to be mistaken for someone who wants to blow the whole system up. I just want it to right. all end. I want it to all end the way I want it to end. <laughs> but no, I, I'm not. I'm not adversarial to the process. I just always Understood. root. I, I'm like, like a sports fan, right? You appreciate the rules, but you're just rooting for your own team. Yeah. So I, I just like to see it end up in a way that I want it to end up. But uh, I want to jump into another one. Uh, until the other day. When someone they 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 officially verify that a, a mountain caribou came down to Montana, right? I missed that. I'm still back with the grizzly that was uh, <laughs> on the golf course in Stevensville a few weeks ago. I heard about that too. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I think you're right. I think they verified it. I think some guys had found. This was up in the yak. Or, yeah, they'd found okay. some flirting with the board, and I think they might have. It might be lured them over. It might be verified that one step foot into Montana, which would be the first time since the 20s or something. But Idaho. Right, had the except for that, and I don't know enough about that to know how freakish that is. If it's one that just packed up and strayed a hundred miles, but Idaho has been the the state 
of the lower, in the lower 48, Idaho's been the state where we have had over the last decades, we've had some number of caribou flirting with the border. And if you, we were going to have a caribou in the U.S., it was presumably, I mean, it was going to be one in Idaho. And that population is suffering. It's Do you been- see, what's your take on it? Is this like a, a big meaningful thing or is it wind up being that it was such kind of a, of a little bit of a fluke and you can't read too much into it that they're now not there? Like, give me the, the mile high perspective on it. From my standpoint, this was almost preordained. Okay. Uh, given the uh, limitations of the habitat, uh, given the small, low productivity of the, of the herd, and the fact that it was reliant predominantly on Canada with a few animals coming in, the critical mass we needed of 30 to 60 animals, we achieved, I think, the mid-30s a number of years ago, and then we've been on a downhill slide since. So Just, like having a population of three or four, you're not... In fact, Canada's going to come in and take those animals and remove them. That's what I understand. To yeah. put them in protective custody to try to preserve the genetics and use those animals to breed some more in, in uh, captive rearing and then reintroduce them at some other point to bolster the remaining population. Uh, part of the problem was predation. Yeah. with the establishment of, of wolves in that area, in addition to the already existing cougar population that was there, it tipped them over. It was that com- combination of factors. And uh, at one point, we had actually given permission to Canada to hire people to come in and kill wolves in northern Idaho. Uh, and they did that. But that wasn't enough uh, because it's not just wolves. It was a combination of wolves and probably black bears on on the, on the young ones, as well as uh, cougar in there. And because their habitat is so small, uh, it was easy for the predators to pick on them uh, there. And so this was preordained. From my standpoint, Steve, it's also an appropriate action. One of the things which with, action, which action is appropriate? Just basically saying we're done. We can't do anymore. We're going to triage this out. Okay. And this is a situation where we did not know how to overcome the limitations to that population. We took those animals and put them into a captive rearing situation. Maybe we'll figure it out, but we, we've decided that the use of resources for those few animals that were declining their extinction was not a good use of resources. Okay. Let's go into the captive rearing game. Let's try to see if we can understand this in the future as we work more, get better at managing other factors, habitat, predation, what have you. And then we can put the resources to managing something we know how to fix yeah. for some other species. And that, that idea of conservation triage uh, under ESA is controversial as the Dickens. There's folks like myself that think it's the way you go. We do it medically. You mean that you'd punt on something? There are, yeah, some of them you just say, I don't know what to do. And no amount of money poured on it is going to make any difference because we don't know what to do. Yeah. Because what would a reasonable number of population be in that? Uh, I can't tell you what the recovery plan was. Uh, I think for the Idaho portion, it was just around 100 animals. Uh, you're flirting around a dozen, yeah, seven to a dozen. Right, for- and then it just it went down to single digits. And, you know, and it was a time where they were either going to go away on their own or we take the yeah. few and you couldn't and, and you didn't see a way to buy your way out of it no not with there wasn't any way and to do it uh, effectively and so the canadians 
chose to offer this opportunity and boom, they're out. So that's that idea that there are, did we give up on them? Not totally, but we recognize there was nothing more to be done right at this moment in time with that species. We damn near got there with sockeye salmon. I mean, I was on the original sockeye recovery team when we got down to one male, Lonesome Larry, came back one year. We had four fish come back the next year. We had zero another year and then seven. I mean, that was a four-year span, and that's a complete generation. One, zero, four, and seven. Right. For a returning population of sockeye. Of sockeye salmon coming back to Redfish Lake in Idaho. Okay. We took all of those fish out of their natural habitat, put them in a hatchery in Eagle, Idaho, and expanded their genetics such that we did not go into what's called inbreeding depression. We used every trick in the book, and there were some really amazing tricks uh, that our staff used. Now we're stocking millions of fish in there to try to build that population back up while we expand the population. Millions of fish that came from those, yes, I can't, I can't from do that, simple math, but yeah, the from those, or so, whatever the hell it was. Yeah, yeah, from those 13 fish that we had, did I add right? That's four, five, seven, yeah, 12 fish um, that we had to work with. Uh, we now have a full-blown hatchery operating uh, that we built with BPA mitigation money, and it was expensive. But we didn't waste our time trying to produce them in on site because the numbers were too small, and numerically, we couldn't get over yeah. the hurdle. Well, fish are different, man, because you can't go pull 100 eggs out of a caribou. That's true. You know? No, nope. we can get 4,000 eggs out of a sockeye. And, yeah. and consequently, it is a different game from that standpoint. But my, my point being is we have to make some of these hard decisions at some point in time not to spend money certain ways or human resources, as the case may be, and, um, and move forward. That's conservation triage where we make those decisions versus everything's important. We've got to pour all the resources into it but there's not enough to take care of it. When you, uh, you've been at this game a long time in this business, right? Yeah. And, and now you're in kind of a pinnacle position. When you look at like these, these tough decisions, do you, uh, do you imagine that there are some that will, will, that will haunt you or that you'll have a sort of legacy as the guy who, like, do you think about that way? Or do you feel like you're so, sort of part of a process, right? And if, if it wasn't you, it would be someone else and that person would probably end up doing the same thing. Or do you feel like you're putting like a, a, a personal like Virgil Moore stamp on things that are going to affect future generations? And they'll look back and be like, that was the guy Certainly that messed it all up. Or, or conversely, the guy yeah. that made it perfect. Well, I'll take responsibilities for the screw-ups because that's the way it works. But the successes are never the, a single person. Um, they're, they're always uh, a group. But the successes that I've been part of that I'm most proud of are forming strong collaboratives among all of the users out there that can agree on how to move forward. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, that's a challenge given the divisiveness in society today. But the closer you get people to the resource on the ground, the easier it is for them to all focus on what they love. So if we're talking about trying to manage Yellowstone cutthroat across its entire range, gosh, that's a big area across several states. 
But if you want to talk about managing Yellowstone cutthroat in the South Fork of the Snake, I can bring those users together. We can sit down and form up a collaborative. Yeah, We've yeah. done it on the Clearwater. We've done it in the Owyhees. We've done it on the Kootenai River. We've done it in, in Montana with the Blackfoot Initiative, the ones that I'm familiar with. And that is the challenge is to find the right sizing of bringing people together that care about that place, that land. Yeah. The, and the, the right resources. size, you mean like the, the sort of the geographical The thing. geographic size that people can embrace. Some of them are massive, like the Hawaii's. It's a big geography, but it's, it, it's a resource people can embrace and get their mind around as they try to come up with solutions to maintaining lifestyle and wildlife resources and plant resources down there. And the Hawaii Initiative was a huge success and still is. And we've got ranchers working with conservation groups, working with uh, other NGOs to to keep a lifestyle on the ground because everybody cares about that sagebrush community down there. We see it in the Clearwater Basin. People care about that resource there and the lifestyle it has. It's hard. It takes a lot of work. That's what I'm most proud of. Every collaborative that I've ever been associated with that has been successful is because everybody came together with that common value. And, uh, and it's a really satisfying thing. And that isn't dependent on an individual then. If that person leaves, yeah. it has momentum of its own. Uh, so, so you feel that some problems, like if you look at just like cutthroat in general, it's just too, like it has to be approached on the micro level. Uh, I, I think the, the, the management schemes for that level. Yeah. need to be. Uh, the issues associated with the South Fork of the Snake and maintaining the spawning tributaries there and dealing with the, the rainbow trout intergression are unique to that area and require localized yeah. work. Uh, and public buy-in. Right, public level. buy-in. Yeah. The way Wyoming is doing it is different because their geography is different. Uh, the way Yellowstone Park is doing it is different. Uh, um, and it's its own community up there with Yellowstone Cutthroat. Montana has a slightly different approach on it. But it's all getting at the same thing, and it's, it's relying on that. Now, we have a tri-state agreement on Yellowstone Cutthroat that we put in place in the 80s and said, here's the things we all agree on are going to be common definitions and common management concepts we're going to manage for purity of cutthroat, and that purity is defined this way, you know, by what proportion of integration is there and how we use those fish and transport them around. We agreed on those basic concepts, but then we went out and built these management things on a localized basis. I'm curious about, if I can interrupt, just uh, something you said about the those collaborative efforts. I mean, if you had to pinpoint something that made them work because i've been part of plenty of collaborations that didn't work what would what would it be it's usually some big controversy uh the one that i'm <laughs> no I, i'm serious and sometimes we're right at the middle of it and that's yeah. where i take responsibility for being at fault and i'll do this on behalf of my agency more than anything but years ago in the henry's fork drainage we've got island park reservoir Island Park Reservoir gets uh, Utah chubs in them. That ties up the biomass and our ability to grow hatchery fish in there for sport fishing. Well, you got to back up on that one. People aren't going to know what you're talking about. Okay. 
I mean, some people know about this. Well, okay, well, anyway, we get competition between fish species okay. and non-game species like Utah chub, which is an exotic. Okay. Uh, we're in there eating all of the zooplankton and, and food gotcha. and tying it up in their bodies. Biomass, I'm sorry. I did get carried away. No, 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 no. Just like what the Utah uh, chub was and it was non A Utah okay. chub is a minnow. It's okay. a great big minnow. And they got dumped and, in there somehow. And they got in there probably through bait buckets and what have you. But the, the bottom line is we have periodically gone in there and poisoned that system with a poison called rotenone. Yeah. It's an extract out of a, a, a root from South America, and it, it blocks the oxygen uptake at the cellular level in the brain, and they just die. You know, me and Yanni have done some South American fish poisoning. <laughs> That's where we learned it from the natives down there, yeah. Yeah, I know that so, world. So um, I, I haven't done that. I'd like to go sometime. It's, it's, I'm telling you what, man, it's fascinating. And anyway, in the process of doing the one that I, uh, the last one of these, we drew Island Park Reservoir way down. And we do that to limit the amount of poison that has to be put in the system and okay. then detoxed as it flows out of there. Okay. And we usually close the dam, draw it down, dump the toxin in, do all the tributaries, try, to kill, the try to kill the chubs, close the gates on the dam and fill it back up. Well, in the process of trying to get the minimum pool possible to save money, they drew the pool down so low it cut through the sediment that had built up in the reservoir, and all that sediment flushed into the Henry's Fork at Harriman Ranch, the fly fishing sure. mecca down there. And it accumulated terribly. Gotcha. And that covered up all the habitat. <laughs> and it did. It created some problems. That created such a public outcry about the Bureau of Reclamation and Fish and Game mismanaging this reservoir and having effects on the wild trout fishery in the Henry's Fork below that the Henry's Fork uh, Coalition uh, uh, formed up uh, under guidance of the Henry's Fork Foundation as well as the local irrigators there that were upset. And they formed one of the most successful collaboratives we have today and included everybody in it. But it was an incident that created that. And if you look around, you'll find often there was an incident or an activity or a legal action that caused something that finally brought people together because they know we got to fix this so this doesn't happen again. And that's just one example of uh, the Henry's Fork Watershed Council forming up. Uh, and that was, gosh, 30 years ago. And they had input from irrigators too. Yeah. They're a big they're part like, of I don't this. know. I, I want water and you boys better figure, right. figure out the fishing situation. And so, so fast forward, the dam was rebuilt, a hydro project was put on it a few years later, and because of that collaborative, the needs of the fish and the irrigators were worked out among the collaborative and fed to the agencies so we could implement them as trust managers uh, for them. And that's the way it should be. Too often, we get put in a position of, why did you make that decision? Instead of implementing things that the community as a whole comes up with. I see our agency and our staff as catalyst, if at all possible, for catalyzing that kind of community interaction so we can come up with these. Certainly, 
ultimately the commission may be making some of these decisions. But trying to get people to come together instead of us standing in the middle of the circle getting shot at by all sides because they're dissatisfied with what we're proposing to try to balance everything out. We're better if we're part of the circle and everybody comes up with an idea that's implementable in consensus or as much as you can. Now, that works until somebody doesn't consent. And then you get these tangents out there. But yeah. it is, by and large, working very well. It's where the focus is right now in natural resource management of our public lands, especially in the resources on those public lands. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off 
plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Do you find areas where there's a lot of public apathy and it surprises you by the lack of input? Yes. I'm always amazed on certain issues that you think are just going to blow things up. We'll put a proposal or an idea out there. We have nothing. We'll have a public meeting or a workshop. Three people will show up. Because there's no big event. Right. I think what we're doing right here, though, with a podcast, what we can do with social media to try to get this information out on a broader sense, um, because I'm old enough, I still like to sit down and have a cup of coffee and read my paper. Okay. But I'm realizing now that my paper is only three pages long. And if I'm going to really get any information, I'm going to have to sit down at least with my tablet yeah. and my cup of coffee and, and read through that. And if I've got a tablet, then I can hot link in to the, to the next level of information if I desire. And that might lead me then to some of these other discussion groups and information from folks like yourself that are going to help us hopefully engage people in a different manner of community as we work forward with these things. Part of the reason these folks are here, the two staff, are to help us with that in terms of how do we get, how do we do that? How do we communicate better? I came up during an era where we did a magazine and we had a TV show. No one does magazines and, and that's TV shows. That's how you kept the public right. abreast of That and newspaper articles. I mean, it was all print or media driven under an analog system. Uh, we need to, and are transgressing, you know, getting into the digital stuff. I think the building we're in here right now is an example of that digital technology. Yeah, we're at the, we're at the Onyx. Not quite the Onyx World Headquarters because it just moved next door. Oh, okay. Well, we're at their Annex. Then. Yeah, we're at the, the Annex. <laughs> One thing I was going to throw in there, um, you know, you mentioned apathy. I've been to some of those meetings where two or three people, in fact, this summer, I think I talked to you about the stuff the DEQ is doing on the Upper Clark Fork. And, yeah. Um, you know, if you go down to the bar, you go down to Charlie B's, everyone will talk about it. Everybody, every fishing guide's got an opinion about it. But I think some of that apathy is derived from the fact that no one knows who's really accountable for stuff. I mean, you, you tell the story about the reservoir getting drawn down and this massive sediment coming out. Um, you know, I, I would imagine, I don't know that this for a fact, but that, that fishing community down there was probably going, who's accountable for this? Who's Who's making up for you know, this money that we're losing, et cetera, et cetera. And I think some of that apathy comes out of the fact that people figure, well, no matter what they There's say. There's not a clear player. Right. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, I find, I, I think that that's true because you hear so many of these issues, some of the ones we've touched on today, you hear people talk about them and they're very passionate about it. But the minute they open their mouth, I'm like, you know what? You're not equipped to talk about this, bro. Right, right, right. <laughs> just by a handful of things you just said, like you're behind, you're not caught up. Yeah, and no. I mean, Virgil, you articulated that those collaborations so well, and it sounds like when those people come together, there has to be some level of compromise in those different entities or collaborative management by its nature is give and take. I mean, it's, but it also builds on relationships and understanding, a core understanding that my need and value really isn't that much different. Example being the rancher who has a piece of property but relies on the public sagebrush grasses to have his 
uh, lifestyle, his ranching lifestyle. I mean, he's got a ranch, but he needs to graze cattle on right. public. He I needs mean, to graze on public lands, right? Yeah. And and he values that environment because it's home. He knows it as well as anybody because he's lived there for maybe three or four generations uh, in his family. And we can't exclude their needs and be successful. Example being sage grouse. Sage grouse need water for an important part of their brood rearing. Even in Idaho, with all the public lands we have, which is 63% federal and another 5% of state, I mean, it's huge, uh, almost all the water is on private land. Okay. That's what was homesteaded. And so if you put a rancher out of business because you're saying you can't graze up here because of endangered species, and they pull their whole operation into their little piece of land that has all the water, and they begin to feed there and utilize all the habitat up, the sage-grouse suffer in the long run because it's disconnected. Yeah. We need the community. Now they get that. What's good for the herd is good for the bird is the catchphrase that we use now. Yeah, like cows, not condos, right? Right. Yeah. And, and that's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, we want these operational ranches out there that are part of the landscape and can be managed in con- conjunction with the other resources we value. They've seen it in the past. They know it can be done. Uh, we've seen it. And so now it's just a matter of being sure we don't restrict any of our activities to the point that everybody just gives up and goes home. Yeah. And that's that's collaboration. That, that's the thing I warn about all the time or think about when thinking about wildlife issues is what happens when you create the damage that's done when you create a spotted owl. Where the spotted owl, a conversation around the spotted owl, the spotted owl like ceased to be a bird. And it became like this this symbol of something and it became like a thing of animosity and it became a symbol of divisiveness. And when you allow some of these conflicts to go to fester and don't strive for some compromise and like people coming to a mutual understanding of what they need to go, you wind up having these like these like wildlife fatalities in, in terms of like what the species stands for. And it's painful to watch it happen. Like if you've heard the howl of a wolf, right? It's beautiful. But it's painful to watch a hat where people are like, when I hear that noise, I think about like my needs not being listened to, man. And that's the only thing I'm hearing right there. And it, and it sucks to see that happen to to wildlife. And I think the way to head that off is to usually, to, you know, these ways of like finding out like what you need, but also giving room to other people to also live their lives and have their needs be met. And it's like, it's hard to do. I used to not look at these issues that way when I was younger. I looked at them in a very rigid way where like, I was right, you were wrong. And you were stupid, and I was real smart, and I was the end of it, you know? And then the more you round and watch successes and failures around some of the stuff, the more you realize, man, it's, you're never going to get there with that attitude. That's correct. I agree. We never got to the question, what are some, like, big fit? what are fish and game gripes? Fish and game don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> they killed all the elk. Like, <laughs> the, the what big, are the ones that are legitimate? Right. Uh, we want more big fish. You know, that, that would be <laughs> putting it. Doing. There's no big fish. Simplistically, but uh, certainly if the legitimate complaint, you ask what the legitimate complaint is, and it would be that we don't know everything about the spot you hunt. Gotcha. When you come to me and you say, do you know how many deer or what the uh, buck-doe ratio is in, you know, Timber Creek? of unit five 
I'm going to go, no, but I can tell you what the buck-doe ratio is in units three, four, and five overall from the combined survey work we've done. But no, we don't know that. And it is a legitimate complaint that we have set management goals based on larger survey units. And this person... It's complaint is you don't know what you're talking about relative to Timber Creek. Because I sat the same blind for 25 years, and I always see X, and this year I saw Y. And it's legitimate from the standpoint of what they see. We talked about that earlier. And what we're trying to do now is look at different ways of censusing wildlife to understanding what's out there, going from the traditional uh, site based survey work where we have to see them, count them, uh, kill them, assess them, whatever the case may be, to something that provides um, a a different level of that. I mean, remote cameras. It's still kind of seeing, but we can get a lot more of them out there. I mean, I just saw them bringing a truckload of remote cameras into our office that we boxed up and sent out to all the regions. I mean, hundreds of these things that we're putting out in in, in matrix to try to get better understanding of what's in Timber Creek, as an example, versus just the larger units based on aerial flights. Um, We're using uh, hair snags and scat analysis, pulling DNA out of these animals so that we can track families. We can tell you by looking at um, DNA from wolf scats whether or not that represents a family unit and whether or not they were successful with getting a a pair, getting a brood off. Uh, Just by getting proper sampling of pieces and parts because we can type those. Our ability today with advanced computer analysis and the speed at which we can do things from when I started my career uh, is, I, I can't even fathom it. I mean, DNA analysis is a good example. We have the DNA makeup of every hatchery fish we stock out. And, and, and it's, it's amazing that we have parental-based stock analysis. You take a fish in the ocean... I can take a, a fin clip or a swab off of that fish. Until I can run an analysis off. and I can tell you which hatchery it came out of and which female produced it. Yeah. And, and, that, and I can do it darn near in a couple of days. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it would have taken you months to pull something like that off before and not with that specificity. But I got a lab full of people that are cranking this stuff out and it's going on all over the place. And, and we're advancing and trying to push the limit, that's the science. That's the science fiction almost of wildlife management as we move forward. It doesn't eliminate the hands-on stuff, the trapping of animals to put collars on them so we can go in and assess how they died, whether it was predation, natural, whatever, uh, get better at that. Um, uh, we still have a lot of that, the fun stuff, jumping out of a helicopter on a, on a calf elk and, and wrestling it to the ground, uh, catching fish in a trap and putting tags on them. That stuff's fun. Handling wildlife is really a kick. It's what got me into this business uh, and learning from that. Uh, but we're, we're trying to get better at this. And, you know, drone technology and infrared technology isn't quite there yet. But, I mean, these satellite collars we put on elk now, 
They beam up to a satellite, back down to the computer. They're instantly on a map, and we can program them to do it every five minutes, every hour, every 10 hours, depending on what we want. And we're able to use that to help landowners understand where an elk herd is relative to depredation on their haystack. Uh, yeah. and, and that's real-time management while we track some stuff around. So You're working toward being able to tell that guy so what's going on in front of his blind. That's the legitimate complaint. Yeah. We've heard it. We're working on it using technology and trying to put more resources into it. Uh, fortunately, in Idaho, uh, our finances are secure uh, for the time being. We went through a low like everybody else when the economy tanked. Uh, our revenues uh, dropped by 25%. Uh, real quick, how, why are you tied to the economy? Because people. <laughs> That's a good question, Steve. We're tied to the economy because half of our license revenue comes from non-residents, oh, okay. but they're only 10% of our hunters. And in the past... Say that again. I want people to hear this. Half of our revenue, our license revenue, which is around $44 million a year, half of that, a little over half of it, comes from non-resident hunters. Who comprise? 10%. Now, we have a lot of non-resident fishermen, but they don't generate nearly the same money because they're buying one-day permits. Yeah. It's, it's a high-volume, low-cost product. So when the economy goes south, people what, are like, I can't, I can't go to Idaho hunting this year. And, we yeah. did not realize how sensitive it was. We'd never seen it before, but when the economy tanked in 2009, we have a quota on non-resident hunting permits in Idaho. Um, it's uh, 13,500 elk tags, 15,500 deer tags. When those are gone for general hunting, they're gone. We've never sold, we've never not sold those out up until 2009. No kidding. No kidding. We yeah. always sold them out. So half of our then revenue year, was guaranteed. And that year they didn't go. And, and we, we did three things. We raised the price of non-resident fees so we didn't have to raise them on resident. Our elk herds tanked because of predation and other habitat-related issues, and the economy tanked. All three of those things combined over a four-year period to drive our revenues uh, down by $9 million. Uh, it was huge. <laughs> it was huge. And what we found is, oh, non-residents are elastic in their coming here. And further analysis showed that it was partially the perception that our elk herds had collapsed and it wasn't worth it. The other part was a big portion of those people who stayed away were skilled trades folks, construction. Construction got hit hardest. Oh, yeah. And those guys were selling their trucks to feed the family. They were, they were not working because the housing market collapsed. Then as soon as the economy started coming up, about a year behind that, and then people got over the price right. increase and started and, hunting. And we, we discounted non-resident products. We marketed to them. But the last two years, we've sold all of our non-resident product out again. Does the state keep track? I mean, I'm sure they do. But um, I know the Montana Guides and Outfitters Association just put out a uh, report that said the outdoor recreation industry in Montana brings in like $7.1 billion annually. We have those numbers. Yeah. For hunting and fishing in Idaho, I believe the direct economic benefit is $1.4 billion. Okay. Idaho has an economy of about $66 billion. 
So that right. gives you some sense of where it fits. It's a pretty sizable number. And, and then wildlife viewing adds about another $600 million to that. So we're about a $2 billion uh, economic activity in the state on a wildlife-based economic activity. All outdoor-based recreation is, I think, it's six. $6 billion. Okay, it's, it's, uh, it's at that $6 billion figure. So, you know, just under 10% of the economy of the state is outdoor-based, and a third of that is based on wildlife. So it's, yeah, it's important, and we can drill that down. We've done the surveys. If you want to know how much people, what the economic benefits are of somebody fishing um, uh, Henry's Lake, I can go to the file and pull that information up and tell you how many fish they caught, how much money they spent, how much money they spent on groceries and housing. We've got that information from surveys, and we can give it to county commissioners. We can give it to local working group, and it's big. Yeah, It's big. So, so tell me a classification of gripe that you feel is illegitimate. Like what's the thing you guys in, in your business, people are like, oh, fish and game, and you're like, man, that just isn't fair. There's probably two. One is you never listen. Okay. <laughs> you okay. never listen to us. You never do what I want done. And and I get it, but it's not a legitimate complaint. Given the amount of public input that our agency seeks, uh, the requirements for public input of a state agency are minimal. I mean, it's like one public meeting before the commission makes a decision. Gosh, we have dozens if not hundreds of public meetings over a year in advance of regulation setting, opportunities for input electronically and other ways. So I don't consider those to be legitimate complaints because there's so many opportunities. What that might mean is I told them my opinion and it wasn't reflected in what ultimately right. happened. So the other one is you don't know what you're talking about. In other words, we'll do a survey whether it's a social survey that asks for, uh, Steve, you get a survey from us and it says, uh, you know, are you satisfied with deer hunting? Um, would you be satisfied with uh, fewer large bucks but more hunting opportunity? A bunch of social science questions that we work with the university to design. And they go back and they go, we don't believe any of this. Okay. It doesn't conform with my opinion, what so we don't believe it. And so, and we see the same thing from deer and elk population surveys. They go, because they didn't see it, we don't believe that. You do not know what you're talking about. That is not a legitimate complaint, okay? We are a science-based organization, whether it's social science, whether it's biological science. I'll stand on our science, and I can tell you, having been a... a in a leadership role in a state agency for over a decade and working nationally uh, among my peers and other state agencies. I can tell you that in the Intermountain West, we have some of the finest fish and wildlife scientists in the world. And in Idaho, we know more about predation management and ungulate management than just about anybody in the world. I mean, we're, we're on top of the game. And, and I'm proud of that. Now, do we have things we don't know? Absolutely. Do we have more to learn and more to do? Absolutely. But don't say we don't know what we're doing. Just understand we don't know everything, and we're still trying to get that. So 
that would be what I would consider. The other thing that really bothers me that I consider is when people personalize their interaction with department staff. I don't like Steve. Steve didn't approach me properly. Um, That very well could be. And every complaint I get of a negative interaction with staff is fully investigated and responded to. And so I end up knowing that most of these are not legitimate. In fact, it's, it's very seldom that I find one in the time that I've spent investigating these over the last 20 years that you find a complaint. It's usually because the individual didn't get the outcome. Whether it was he got a citation or he got information he didn't want or whatever the case may be. And ultimately, when you go back through and, and find the facts, it's, it's not there. And yeah. that doesn't mean that the person didn't feel that way. But that didn't actually happen that way. That's one of the advantages of tape recorders and video cams. Uh, it pretty much takes care of. We, I've actually seen people look at those and go, oh, <laughs> I had no idea I did that. You know, they don't remember that part of it. You know, yeah. it's, it's, uh, we have selective memory as humans, and it's just the way it happens sometimes. Yeah. Has there been, um, what did we miss? Were you, is there anything you were dying to get into that we didn't get into? Well, I, I, I will say one of the other things that I think is important and important to all of you guys around the table is public access. Certainly in a public lands state, we tend to think of and take our public access. But we also have a huge amount of private land. Mm-hmm. And in Idaho, we had a, uh, an out-of-state person uh, from Texas come in and buy up, um, gosh, 100,000-plus acres of timberland and immediately fenced and closed it all to public access where the uh, corporate timber company had allowed public access on it yeah. before. Uh, it was a huge eye-opener. Uh, to sportsmen and to us to suddenly have lost a big chunk of a hunting unit that was very important to folks. And it caused us to really start thinking about how do we enhance our ability to protect these large corporate lands from being closed so that the public can continue to enjoy the wildlife that they own, that we manage for them on those private lands as well. So two years ago, the legislature uh, gave us some additional funds with a fee increase we asked for. Uh, part of it went to pay for depredation damage. The to fee growing. increase mean the license increase? License fee increase, okay, so yeah. So this is like what you're doing with that money. What we're doing. And a part of it was to enhance what we call Access Yes. It's a program we've had for a lot of, a lot of years, but it was uh, bubbling along with three to $400,000, most of it coming in from our uh, lottery, big game tag, uh, super hunt. Mm-hmm. People would buy those chances, and that was funding our Access Yes program. Now you pay uh, money on every license sold, whether it's hunting or fishing. It's a $5 fee. A portion of that $5, about half of it, goes into the Access account. And now we're, we've added about $1.4 million, uh, to that account. Uh, so effectively tripling uh, what we've got available for access, yes. Uh, and that money goes toward making private lands, be they corporate or just private deeded properties, directed, giving public access to that. Right, that either to that land to hunt and fish 
or through that land to get to public lands. Either way, we can do it either yeah. way. We've had real success for upland bird hunting and some stuff like that around the Boise area and some of the southern part of the state. We've not had a lot of success in the large corporate lands in the central and northern part of the state. Um, we also had a threat to state lands. Uh, our state lands uh, are about four million, or about two point four million acres, and they were under threat of lease for exclusive use. We'd had some people saying, "I want to lease this state section that's next to my private land for exclusive use for hunting and fishing." So far, we've been able to sidestep that, but state law requires the the Department of Lands. To generate maximum revenue for schools, yeah, for the school trust fund. And some guys willing to pay more than what the public system right. can pay. We don't have any choice. So we just signed an agreement with Department of Lands, approved by the land board and our commission, that we use a portion of that access yes money. We're paying Department of Lands for all access to their lands, um, uh, every bit of it for hunting, fishing, and wildlife-based recreation. So we've preserved the opportunity now and diminished the likelihood of an adverse um, exclusive use agreement on those lands. That's that's going to cost us about $300,000 a year. Do you feel all in all you guys are right now every year adding to accessible acres? Do you think you're at a net loss when when all things are considered? Um, I hope to announce shortly that we have an agreement on private timber land that will secure access to another million acres uh, of of land in the next couple of weeks. And with that agreement, we will have a net gain. Okay. That's, good <laughs> so, news. That's good news. So we're using that additional money, and we went out for uh, proposals uh, for what we call large corporate landholders. What would you propose to us for a fee that we could pay you to gain access for hunting and fishing to your large corporate lands? We have those proposals. We're evaluating those proposals. Uh, We're very close to agreeing to some of those proposals at this point in time that will add in excess of a million acres. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of that and the staff work that went into it. I, my hat's off to our legislature for allowing that increase to be dedicated to that purpose as well. Uh, but it, it's a biggie. And I see that as giving us the annual financial resources uh, needed to secure this into the future. So... Um, I just wanted to get that in there, Steve, that, well, glad, ma- that of all the things we hear from sportsmen, even in a public state, is access. They want more access, or I lost my access. Like you said, it's an, uh, somebody shut it down. A private entity bought that 40 acres or 120 or 360 or whatever it is, and it's now posted. Uh, it's, it's important that we're actually meeting here at the Onyx place because this idea of where are you at and trespass is very important and private landowners are very sensitive to trespass but how do you know there's some posting requirements but it's still in a big open state like this where you wander up one side of the mountain down the other and you come in on the backside and you walk up to a fence that's next to a road and it's posted and you didn't see anything when you came down the other side where is it 
your responsibility to know where you're at versus the landowner's responsibility to post. And we're moving. I'd say you have a high responsibility to know. I, I agree. Yeah. In Idaho, there is some posting responsibilities of the private landowner on non-agricultural land, basically timber and rangeland. But I think we're very quickly moving to the point where you've got to know where you're at all the time. Yeah. You're, it's your responsibility, <clears throat> not the landowner's, it's to so know that. It's so much easier now. It is, it but again, does everybody carry you know a, a smartphone or a GPS around with them? No. Uh, most of us do that are avid, but not everybody else does. And so uh, part of it is getting the mapping, getting the information out there, and again, the technology to do that. And uh, certainly talking about it, letting people know that in Idaho, you can go on our website and we have a hunt planner. You say, I want to go hunt white-tailed deer and I want to hunt it in Timber Creek. And you might use my example again. It'll pull up the maps and show spot? you. Yeah, it is an excellent <laughs> spot. Well, is, that, is that as good as Dry Creek? <laughs> yeah, right. That's <laughs> no, better. Uh, and, and it'll tell you the land ownership. It'll tell you the regulations. It'll tell you everything about that piece of land, however you want to scale it, to look at what you can do in that area. And couple that with these machines and and uh, some other third party software so you know where you're at all the time. Yeah. You're good to go. And and I've still got I would have to say dozens, that's probably hundreds of quad maps that are folded up in, in the under the seat keep, of my under the seat of my man. truck and I, and I pull those things out and jam them in my backpack. I still carry a real compass with me because these things aren't reliable. The batteries go dead. You don't have access. Oh, I forgot to download that, so it was on resident. No, I still, I still value paper maps. I think they still have a role. I, I agree, and I think it's something that uh, we as mentors to hunters uh, should be teaching them. Uh, and if there's a last thing I want to say about Idaho being the opportunity state and the need for us as hunters and anglers to mentor people in to teach them the ethics and the responsible interaction with wildlife, the uh, respect for that wildlife, live or dead, that needs to be there as we utilize it, consume it, enjoy it, uh, revel in the experiences around the campfire, which we all do. Uh, those are important. I'm proud to say that in Idaho, we have a thing called the passport. If you're a hunter, and you know somebody that's never hunted, and it doesn't make any difference whether they're a kid or an adult. Somebody moves into town and sees that you're a hunter. I would really like to go up, but they don't have hunter ed or anything else. You can go down to the to the license vendor, and as a hunter, you can sponsor that person and get a passport. That is, what's the cost of it? Three seventy five. A dollar seventy-five. Then you can, if you want to take them deer hunt, you buy a deer tag to go with it. You go out and shoot birds. And they're good for how long? That year. And then, that, then that person has to get it together and go take right. hunters. It's a one-time opportunity That's to nice. mentor somebody, but it's great. It 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 gets this obstacle of, gosh, I'd really like to go with you, but I don't have. For sure. Okay, I can get that for you. You're ready to go. And we came so, up against we came up against that over Thanksgiving weekend because. Um, we were all kind of half doing Thanksgiving family stuff. We are all kind of half hunting, and we ran out of deer tags. We started looking at people who didn't have a tag and being like, 
Yeah, get this person licensed up. Right. And this is a way you can do it if you had a, a yeah. newbie that had never hunted before. Just take them down and get it. And they've got to be accompanied by a licensed hunter. Yeah. And, but it's neat. And you can take kids as young as eight that haven't had a chance to do hunter ed if you're a parent or a guardian or whatever. Is that where it is an Idaho kid can hunt, hunt deer or whatever at eight years of age? They can hunt uh, small game and birds. They can't hunt deer until they're 10. Okay. Uh, that's the breakoff. That's what I, that's what I thought. Yeah, Yanni, I know you just broke your silence, but uh, what else is on your mind, man? <laughs> kind of on the opportunity um, theme, Idaho does trophy species where you can only apply for one of the. There's three, right? You guys right. do goat, sheep, and moose. Were you around when that was? put in place that system and then just what are your general thoughts on it because we really like it i mean i i like the way that it's set up that you guys don't do the bonus points and the preference points and all that to deal with that big mess um and then then they put the once in lifetime back into once in lifetime that's correct we no longer call them trophy species they're once in a lifetime species species. again getting at that perception meaning you can really never draw it again not not for a once in a lifetime so example of that. And the answer is, yeah, I was around. And our commission has the authority to do bonus points. They, they look at it about every five to six years, it comes back up. Uh, and every time we provide them the, the information about what it means, they always have backed away from it in Idaho. But you'd make a lot of money doing bonus points, right? From a financial standpoint, I will tell you, the last time this came up about seven years ago when we were tanking financially, it was looking pretty darn good to me as a director, trying to figure out how to keep from getting deeper into the hole. But it is a pyramid scheme from a sportsman standpoint, I'll be honest with you, depending on which method you use. There's so many different ways to do it. But if you keep getting the opportunity to use your points, if it goes up sequentially every year because more people are getting into it, you've created a pyramid scheme that those who get in first or near the bottom are okay, but those who come into the bottom may have four, five, six years before they even get to that point. And depending on how many jam into it, it may not get there for some species. And that's what we looked at is for very hard-to-draw species, bighorn sheep, mountain goat, uh, you may not get there even with bonus points. Oh, yeah. For, you, know, you know how many bonus points I'm going into the Montana bighorn sheep draw this year? Because they square them here. Not enough? No, I'm going in with 324 <laughs> points. Right. And so, I have lifetimes worth of bonus points, and I still am running a sub-1% chance right. of drawing the tag. And that's what you get into is the squaring thing, the other <laughs> methods of trying yeah. to make sure everybody in there eventually gets one. Um, but the commission has chosen, our commission, and this has gone back as far as 25 years ago when it first came up. I remember I was a fisheries guy at the time when I heard the first discussion. And we've continued to give that presentation over the years to new commissions as they come on. And that presentation is, by the way, online on our website. So if you ever want to look at it, it has some gaming stuff in there that helps you understand how the various techniques work and what the end result is. It does work okay for moderate level uh, controlled hunts. Ones that have under 20 to 1 odds. 
Um, and if it's less than five to one odds, you don't need it anyway. You're going to get one in a couple of years without that. But in that intermediate range, it works really good to guarantee if you'll stay in there for three to five years, you'll get a tag. On the higher than 20 to one, it falls apart. And that's part of the problem is where do you use it and how do you apply it relative to that. So uh, our commission has just chosen to stay away from it. Uh, but there's no guarantee it'll stay like that. No, no <clears throat> none whatsoever. That and could change. Uh, overall, are the constituents happy? In Idaho uh, with it's that a system? split. It uh, we have uh, what I would consider a, a, a mobile group of hunters that moves around multiple states and hunts. Uh, we have a lot of our majority of our hunters just hunting Idaho. The folks who move around to other states like points because they can pile them up in all the different states and they spend a lot of money accumulating that, buying tags and what have you, so they can accumulate that. They seem to like that because they've covered their board. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the residents yeah. don't necessarily. They're, they're more place-oriented with the way they do things, and they just want to know that they've got an equal chance with everybody else and that their kid or grandkid has that equal chance uh, like everybody else. So, um, yeah, and then back to the once-in-a-lifetime, uh, I just killed a moose last year, my, my, a nice bull, uh, on the you, south fork of the snake. You drew a tag? I drew a tag the, after seven the, years. No, it took me seven no, years. No, you got it because you're the <laughs> it retirement, so. it retirement gift? <laughs> yeah, right. It doesn't work that way, unfortunately. But um, So seven years in, you drew one? I drew one, killed yeah. a nice bull last year, I'm done. Now, I can put in for a cow tag if we've got a population that is growing too fast and we want to take some cows out. That's not limited. Uh, but, uh, You're done on moose. I'm done on moose in Idaho. Yeah. We so, just had a friend who drew, she must be, what, probably in her 30s, right? Yeah, I'd say. Early. And to be done, you're just done. Yeah. So, bighorn sheep. We have two species, so you can get one for each, the desert bighorn and okay. the Rocky Mountain bighorn. So you can have two opportunities there. Right. But mountain goat, one and you're done. You know what's pretty terrible? In this state, they made it that you can, uh, you can buy bonus points now, whether you're in the right. draw or not. So even though my kids aren't old enough to actually hunt, <laughs> I, can get, I went out and got them little – I got them all numbers. They can start buying. They can take their allowance or their dad can just do it for them. And buy them bonus points. So when they're like 20, my little kid could have 17 bonus points. That's horrible. I'm taking advantage of it because it's there, it's, but it's, it's horrible. It's, I felt guilty doing it. It's what just eventually games the, games the system and blows it up. <laughs> oh, yeah. Is because of it's that. Ridiculous. They, shouldn't let, they shouldn't let people like me do stuff like so, that. So you anyway. know you're part of the problem. You're going to go ahead and do it anyway. Yeah. And you know, in this state, like they assign. So when you get an AL, there's like a customer number. And your customer number is your birthday. And then the number after it is how many people with your birthday have it. So meaning like when, they, when the ALS system came in, I, my oh, ALS okay. number is number three. Meaning I was the third guy with my birthday to get to apply for a number. Now they're assigning numbers that are up in the hundreds, right? But when my little kids who are three, five, and eight, I went down to get them ALS numbers and they're all number one. Like so no one right. with those, so I'm, I know really? I'm ahead of the game because no one with that birthday has gone and done it yet. Right. So they're going to kill it. <laughs> I just can't decide how far I'm going to run with this because I do feel guilty about it. And I almost might even not do it. I can't well, decide. Well, you'll get like me at some stage. You'll have to do that with your grandchildren. 
as, as it goes well, out. Oh, it's going to get expensive. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> There's a multiplication. Well, one other follow-up question. Uh, when you're um, when the economy tanked and you're trying to figure out a way to get some more money, did dedicated sales tax ever come up? Because there's some, a couple of states that have done very well with that. We've looked at it. Um, oh, gosh. Five years ago, we did a thing called the Wildlife Summit. <clears throat> and it was trying to bring all folks together to talk about wildlife on a statewide basis. And um, an outcome of that was trying to build uh, understanding of the needs of all wildlife and that we weren't able to generate enough revenue uh, to take care of the needs of the 80% of non-game and right. other wildlife that was out there. Um, a What I call a loose coffee clatch of conservation groups. After that was done, we did a survey of Idahoans to see whether or not they would support an initiative that would either dedicate a portion of the sales tax or support an increase the the increase was less than 50 percent people just weren't willing to do that it was slightly over 50 percent of the folks were willing to support a dedicated portion of the existing sales tax oh, okay okay so uh, the 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 folks that know the politics of initiatives and everything said that given where we were at in the political cycle with elections and everything else that that was not probably – they could get the signatures to get it on the ballot, but they weren't sure whether it would make it. And it depends on whether or not you have an entity that's well-funded that will oppose it. If you don't have any well-funded opposition, you can run these things through. But because we're getting at sales tax – whether it's an increase or a piece of the existing, opposition was going to be huge. Yeah. And so that particular loose coffee clatch of folks backed away from that at this point in time for the state of Idaho. The beautiful people in Missouri pulled it off. <laughs> they did. And being a Missourian, I was in college during the time that that stuff was going forward. And it took them 12 years of trying different Oh, did it really? I didn't know that, man. Uh, they tell the story like it was like no, everybody rallied around and no. they got her done. But when oh, it, right, <laughs> because when it passed, it passed with, I mean, not quite unanimous, but... But it was a high, high support. Yeah. And, and, 12 uh, years? It did. It, they, they went with a pop tax and a beer tax and failed on that. They tried all kinds of things before they came up with the one-eighth of one percent uh, sales tax increase, which has been the gold standard. Uh, Florida does a real estate transfer tax. Every time a piece of real estate sells, there's a piece of that fee. You know, all those fees you pay when you buy yeah. a piece of property. Well, there's a little piece of that in there now that goes to the wildlife fund. And that's working for them down there. It went down when when things tanked, but it went back up. Um, uh, Arkansas and Iowa went with a similar sales tax system as Missouri. And... Uh, Arkansas got theirs through. Iowa got theirs through, but they didn't fund it. So, you know, it, it, the mechanism's there, but they didn't initiate it. Since most everybody that dips likes to hunt and fish, they should just have a dip tax. I'm with you on that. So the, there is a solution, though. I don't want to leave this before I, I speak to a solution that's live in Congress right now. And it's called Restoring America's Wildlife Act. And it's following it – would, it would take the uh, royalties – from uh, oil and gas 
and mining. Onshore. Onshore. Onshore, yeah. offshore. It's all of that royalties. Okay. And, and that royalty package is around $12, $14 billion a year right now. Um, it would dedicate $1.3 billion of that into the Pittman-Robertson Fund, a subset of it. Which would double the fund. It would double the fund. And it would uh, – then that money – would come back to the states based on the size of the state and the population. Very similar to the way we do PR for hunting, which is the number of hunting licenses and the size of the state. Comes back to the state to manage. A very familiar mechanism for the states to get financial resources to manage all wildlife. And that's a reallocation. That's not a new tax. That's a reallocation of a, of a fund. It is the fund that the Land and Water Conservation Fund taps into right now. Uh, and so there is legislation. Our own Senator Risch in the state of Idaho is sponsoring it on the Senate side. It's got over 100 co-sponsors on the House side right now. It's got good bipartisan support? It does. Yeah. The, the House support is at 105, and it's split almost equally down the middle. The, the co-sponsorship on the Senate side, I'm not as sure of. But the co-sponsors, the four I'm familiar with, are bipartisan. So, and the Senate works different than the House on that stuff anyway. Yeah. Um, so we're hoping that they'll get – to get a major hearing on this. We've had some smaller hearings, <clears throat> but it's moving forward. I, you know, it's, uh, it was classified as a moonshot to get it through this Congress with – between now and the time they adjourn in December. But it's still live, and Senator Risch is trying to get a hearing going on it. Um, this would be huge uh, for a state like Idaho. If we got our allocation, it would be on the order of fifteen to seventeen million dollars annually. So you know, take that. Our total DJPR allocation is about that much. So it puts the the uh, wildlife diversity non game program on the same footing. And allows us to have the resources to manage all wildlife populations. The fear, a lot of hunters and anglers fear loss of control of their commissions and departments. Oh, yeah, man, I feel through that. This. And, and it's not an, an illegitimate fear, but I go back to my home state of Missouri and see what happened there. I mean, they pumped $110 million a year into their budget. It's the majority of their budget. They got about another $60 million, I think, in license sales and then other money in there. They're about twice as big budget-wise as the state of Idaho uh, with, with what they've got back there. But hunting and fishing is better and stronger there now as a result of having that collaborative of all users – yeah. getting things done. And so when you look at the case histories of states that have had this additional money, Florida being the other example, hunting and fishing there is actually booming with those additional resources. It will mean some changes in, in uh, how we go about interacting with the public on allocation of budget. But certainly I don't think it's to be feared. It's to be managed. Yeah, that, that'd be my perspective on it. I understand how I understand the viewpoint of people being leery about new voices right. sitting around the table, new voices at the table. Um, I get that. I still think that uh, I still think it's better to, to go with the money and and 
you know, play the play run. the game however you need to play it, but to but to go with the extra funding and then, and then sort the rest out after the fact, or at least go into it with the right kind of mind frame. And well, our track record where we have financial resources and focus, if there's a sensitive species out there, I can keep them off the list, or I can get them off the list. Okay, with that kind of financial resources, I know we can do it because we've done it. And um, and I'm I would be anxious to to see that pulled off. Um, we'll see. Uh, again, it's a moonshot, but it's live and it's moving forward. We've been two years moving this forward. Uh, the group that put it together was a group called the Blue Ribbon Panel. Yeah. And uh, uh, Johnny Morris from Bass Pro, now Cabela's too, um, was the co-chair along with Governor, former Governor Friedenthal from Wyoming. And most everybody on that panel were NGOs and uh, private business. It wasn't a bunch of government folks. They're the ones that looked at this and said, yeah. And then that, their first recommendation was this $1.3 billion. That's where we focused. The second one is increasing our relevancy to all people about wildlife management. Money goes a long ways to helping that. But certainly, how do we as hunters and anglers show that the use of hunting, fishing, and trapping for wildlife management is relevant to everybody? And I think that's a, a big part of, of the challenge that we have in the future as hunters and anglers is to maintain relevancy. We've got the support. We've got that mid-70s support for traditional hunting, even higher for fishing. we just got to hang on to it, and we do it by doing what we know as hunters and anglers we are, and that's conservationists first. And we lead the way with our own actions and activities to get this stuff done. Any final thoughts, Chris? Man, no, Virgil's just schooling me all He's day. Tearing it up. It's fantastic. Virgil for Department of Interior or something, right? Is that yeah. <laughs> no, that, that means DC. It's a great place no, to no, visit. I, I really, I've, I've learned a ton. I, one of the last thing I was going to ask you maybe was um, so your Access Yes program. Yes. Is Idaho Fishing Game the only state entity in charge of procuring more public access? We have the Idaho Department of Parks and Recreation that has responsibility for trail access for both motorized and foot travel. And we work very closely with them. Uh, They also have responsibility for some boating access. We have our own boating access program. They have theirs. Uh, counties have some responsibility because they get a piece of the DJ, Dingle Johnson funds. Uh, but as far as um, land-based hunting and fishing and trapping, we're it. Right. Uh, the others are directed at more generalized uh, uh, recreation or motorized or powerboat recreation in that particular case. And compared to what we're putting on the table uh, financially, it's a very small piece right. of that. Well, it, it seems like in Idaho and Montana as well, the public – the economy benefits so much from yes, our does. public land that that you know m- more entities should be – putting chips on the table to procure it, I think. Some of the NGOs are huge players there. Uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Right. Uh, yeah, has, they, do. they do a ton for access. They do, and, yeah. and they, they've been very uh, uh, cooperative, collaborative. 
They've got money to bring to the table that they'll match with anything you've got. And the Mule Deer Foundation, to a lesser degree, is is part of that. Uh, those are the two primary players. Uh, Trout Unlimited does some for stream access for fly for fishing, um, and uh, we've got some <clears throat> some other players in there. But uh, uh, I don't want to dismiss some of those NGOs that have been very uh, focused and effective, particularly Rocky Mountain Elk with their initiative to get access through private land to public land. They've been able to really uh, do some good things there. Awesome. All right, thank you. Thank you, man. We did a, we did a deep dive, man. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I uh, uh, enjoy this stuff. Yeah, fish so, eggs to Dingle Johnson. Yep, you got it all. Give me some more time. We'll give you more. <laughs> we'll, we'll have you back. Well, you know, I want to have you back. How long? How, you're, you're retiring, right? I am. I'll, I'll be retiring in January. Then you're, uh, you're going to come back for a big shit talking session. I can. Right there, I right? can They're talk to you. Cut loose. <laughs> Better yet, I'll have you come over, and uh, I don't know if this stuff works on the back of a jet boat while we're trolling for steelhead. It does. Uh, we can we can plug it all into an inverter, and we'll make this stuff work. And do a live fishing. And we show? can do a live fishing show. We did a live ice fishing show one time. I can do that too. I've yeah. got a place on Cascade Reservoir, and we can scoot right out on the ice and uh, catch some of those trophy perch that we've got there. You're talking yellow perch. Yellow perch. I saw him go like this. Yeah. Said, trophy yeah. perch. <laughs> I, I, I want it. it. <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're pushing 18 inches, 18 and a half. Holy Yep, and uh, it's, it's still got two, three-year classes in there that are growing into that. So, yeah, like, I get my, like walleye. It's a fish you know, it's a fish story. I got to yeah. get this right. That's but good. no, they are like walleye. These things are huge. I mean, uh, uh, 14 and 16 inch perch are routine really? up there. Yeah. You catch three of those and you got dinner. Uh, That's great, man. Yeah, it is. It yeah. is great. So well, stay tuned and thank you again. All right. Thank you, Steve. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting into go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. 
It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.